VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, May the 11th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer, don't you know it? If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get into queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, as you heard Brian mention, and if you have a window or you're outside or you're driving your car, glorious, clear, blue sky, warm day, and remarkably, very little wind, just a very gentle breeze, clear overnight, obviously, because a little bit of frost on the windshield. I just heard Brian say that it's uh, temperature is heading to 15 tomorrow, 17 on Saturday. I suppose it won't be too long before I'm complaining that it's too hot. All right, and as the phrase is commonly used, the Leafs live to fight another day after a 2-1 win last night. Not really much of a game, but anyway, the Leafs are th- down 3-1 in the series. And the Oilers, they got a 4-1 win over Vegas. Some of their big dogs involved, of course, and the series tied 2-2. And the Growlers back in action tonight at Mary Brown Center. Puck drop at 7 as they try to sweep the Reading Royals, which would be their first sweep in the playoffs in the team's history. So there you go. On an interesting one. I don't know if you're watching any baseball. I watch a lot of baseball. They don't steal bases like they used to. right? If you look at the career leaders for single-season uh, st- stolen base records, in the modern day, Ricky Henderson in 1982 stole 130 bases. You look down through the list of the top 100, you see the names pop up, the modern-day names, Lou Brock, Ricky Henderson, Vince Coleman, Ronald LaFleur, Timmy Raines, and others. There hasn't been a player in the major league steal 100 bases since, I think, 1980-something or other. So, and only one person in the top 100 has stolen uh, anywhere, pardon me, there's only one player in the top 100 that has stolen bases in 2000s on that list in the 2000s. But it was on this date in 1980 that Pete Rose, the mysterious career and the ban from the Hall of Fame for Pete Rose, he stole second, third, and home in the same inning. They don't steal bases like they used to. All right, far be it for me to tell you what to be worried about and what are the ultimate concerns. We know the issues facing the people of the province and housing and health care and the fishery and mining and the wind and hydrogen and the oil business, whatever it is that concerns you, let's talk about it on this program. But some things really do strike at the heartstrings and draw forward the emotions. And I think that's the story when we talk about the Ocean Newfoundland and the decision at Memorial University to keep it out of the convocation ceremonies. So for some history here, we've been talking about Sir Cavendish Boyle basically because of the Boyle Trophy being now competed for again Tier 2 High School. So originally composed by Boyle in 1902. It was sung first by Francis Daisy Foster at the Casino Theatre in St. John's during the closing of the play Manziel on December 22nd of 1902. It was originally set to music by a fellow named Krippner, who was a German bandmaster living in town, but apparently Boyle wanted what he called a more dignified score. He brought in British composer Sir Hubert Parry, longtime friend of Boyle, and of course composed two settings. On the 20th of May 1904, the ode was chosen as Newfoundland's official national anthem. Dropped when Newfoundland joined Canada in 1949, then in 1980 readopted the Ode to Newfoundland as the official provincial uh, uh, anthem, the first province to have such a thing. And now it can't be sung at Mons Convocation Ceremonies. So they say there's going to be ongoing consultations. Okay, when we talk about inclusion, it just seems to me so counterintuitive to exclude something in an era of inclusion. And I don't know what your thoughts are on it, and please give us a shout to talk about it if you're so inclined this morning, or if you think it's an issue that deserves conversation. To me, it just seems like an unnecessary mistake. 
you know, some people have been speaking quite vociferously about this and have really massive emotional reaction, and so be it. Some people don't care. Once again, so be it. But when we talk about inclusion, like if you added the O to Labrador, that would cover a lot of the bases here. Then they go on to talk about, for instance, students from other parts of the country or international students. Are international students really offended by something uniquely Newfoundland and Labrador? Like, are they really feeling something is wrong with that? This just feels like a strange thing to pursue. And of course, if you're trying to please everybody, you're destined to fail. It's virtually and legitimately and literally impossible to do so. So I get it. There are much bigger issues at play that deserve probably the bulk of conversation and air minutes, but this one here is emotional. And I'm not surprised one iota that people are reacting as such. So I don't know what the future is going to hold with the consultations and the recommendations from the Senate Committee on Honorary Degrees and Ceremonials, but I just don't quite get this one. If you are someone who has felt offended or excluded, we can talk about that. But does it not cover all the bases when the O to Newfoundland is accompanied by the O to Labrador and international students? I would be shocked if any of them were going to say, wow, I was convoking and they sung the O to Newfoundland. What about something that reflects my country of origin or what have you? Do they really think like that? And again, the essence is an attempt to please everybody is an impossible task. It's a flight of fancy. You want to take it on? We can do exactly that here this morning. And another issue that popped up yesterday that once again got some interesting reaction, and it's probably a who cares kind of story, but maybe you're someone who cares. So they have rejigged the Canadian passport. Now, for me, I don't really care, but there's some interesting decisions were taken here. So if the effort was to make it much more difficult to counterfeit, because the longer the current passport is in play, the more likely it could indeed be adopted by a counterfeiter. We know the problems associated with those fake passports. So no longer does the inner pages reflect some historical moments for the country and or monuments. Now they're talking about natural landscapes and kids jumping into a lake and animals like bears and narwhals and owls. No longer will you see the pictures of uh, Parliament Centre Block, the Stanley Cup, the last spike into the Canadian Pacific Railway, photos of uh, Terry Fox or Nellie McClung. They're all gone by the wayside for this. If it's all about security, fine. But some interesting changes also made. When we talk about, for instance, the Royal Canadian Legion saying, removing the images of Vimy Ridge, the Vimy Memorial, pardon me, they're displeased with it. And I think it's a fair question to ask why. It really does look like the inside of a children's book. It doesn't affect me one, one bit. I really don't care. But for some people, they wonder how and why these decisions are taken. Like, what is wrong with some Canadian monuments that are very much part of Canadiana? But anyway, the passport is another issue that may or may not be important in your mind but it's getting some reaction out there, like everything else does. Okay, move on to much more important matters, I suppose. So the final counter offer is in play now to see whether or not this year's snow crab fishery will proceed. The harvesters, the license holders, are going to have a chance to vote on this. The final vote has to be tallied up at uh, 9 p.m. tonight. So here's what they're trying to attempt. So the earner Barry Index, which is used to evaluate market conditions and apply to lobster, for instance, now they've got a scaled price based on market realities that will see whether or not this gets any traction. And here's what they've decided. So once again, the earner Barry Index. When the index reaches 525 US, the price will increase to 225 per pound, then slides up. At 550, the price to 230. At 575, the price to 240. At six bucks, the price will increase to 250. And then after six bucks, they're talking about going back to the price setting panel for an adjustment. 
the price index as of Friday, last Friday, and I don't know whether the market's going to improve or continue to soften, but the market was at 465 American, and all those numbers are in American. Only the prices per pound were Canadian dollars. So we'll see if it gets going. One question that has not been asked very often during this standoff is, where is everybody on the plant workers? Many of them have already run out of employment insurance. And yes, represented, some of them maybe will be represented by the FFAW. And then it's all the suppliers that are involved that, you know, the trucking industry. They got their trucks parked, mechanics laid off, drivers laid off, office staff laid off. So it's not just about the processors and the harvesters. There's the plant workers and all their, their suppliers and companies that are indirectly involved in the snow crab fishery or the fishery at large. But once again, either side of that conversation is welcomed here on the program. Sticking with the water for a second. The town of CBS, through no fault of their own, have as many as 50 dead seals washed up on their beaches. And so when Mayor Darren Bent goes to the province or to the federal government at DFO to look for some help, both just said, nope, you're on your own. So as people refer to it, the lowest rung on the political ladder being municipal government. Without the scientific training, without the crew, without the, bu- the built-in or the baked-in knowledge of how to deal with this, they are responsible. So they've hired a contractor. It's going to cost about $15,000 and to clean up and remove these carcasses. Because here we are in a tourism season, or even for the locals. Nobody wants to have to tiptoe around some 50 dead seals on the beaches. I can't for the life of me understand why this is not DFO's responsibility. Same thing happens when the whales wash up. So before we actually get to cleaning the place up, before it becomes toxic and rancid, we have this finger-pointing around of who's actually responsible here. For once and for all, we should really boil it down to this really does lay at the feet of DFO. I mean, they've got the scientists. They understand the issue. They understand the risks, right? They're, They're the people who are responsible for the fisheries and the oceans. And the ocean, just because the seals are outside the low tide mark, it's a funny way to measure it. So $15,000, Mayor Ben says he will try to recoup it after they entertain this, because they got to get it cleaned up right away. But it's about time we figure this one out and stop doing something so foolish as, well, the seal happens to be a couple of feet above low tide mark, so municipalities, the least equipped to deal with it, you're on the hook, probably not the best idea. Okay. And obviously a bit of a campaign overnight in my email inbox regarding the port port Peninsula in particular and the wind-to-hydrogen proposal. So we heard from Helen Forsey from the Council of Canadians the other day, and what they're saying is they want this to be in the hands of the federal government, not just the provincial government and their environmental assessment, their process and parameters. So I believe they think this belongs in the hands of the Impact Agency of Canada. My question would be, and this is maybe I'm just misunderstanding the process here, what exactly makes that a more stringent approval process inside that agency? Doesn't it work very similar to the provincial process? So the companies would do the assessment, hire people to help with the assessment, provide the data to the province or to the Impact Agency of Canada. They will go through it and scrutinize, come back with questions or asking for clarification or more work to be done, and then it's resubmitted, it's evaluated, maybe back to the well again, and finally they will either reject or approve. So I'm not really sure what the federal government would offer insofar as additional environmental assessment parameters, stricter, and how that would unfold. I really don't know exactly what they're trying to achieve there. But when the province is really quite clear moving ahead with this, so there's some 19 proposals being considered here. We're going to hear decisions late next month or early into July. And so over in Rotterdam, 
you know, some additional numbers that have come to bear. There was a 75-person delegation from this province in Rotterdam at the World Hydrogen Summit. So surge in demand is absolutely very, very real. And they say they're over there on a sales pitch. So without anything in production, the sales pitch just says the quiet part out loud. Eventually, there will be approvals for some of these projects. Now, evaluating 19 at this moment, there was initially some 31 proposals. They won't all get a green light. Some of them maybe will not be able to raise the money to get them off the ground. But I had representatives from four different communities, Port of Basque, Port of Basque, uh, Cornerbrook, Botwood, and Placentia were also part of that. So if you're a member of the leadership group in any of those communities, want to talk about what you heard, what you see, what you think the future holds for the possibility of moving forward with one of these proposals, let's talk about it on the show. Just one second, sip of coffee. We're back. All right. Yesterday in the second health care action plan update, we heard from the Minister of Health Community Services, Tom Osborne. And a couple of key focus areas were missed appointments. Fair enough. So they're going to expand the automated notification system. It's already in place in a couple of notable areas. Medical imaging, card cardiac and pulmonary services, uh, endoscopy. Now we're going to expand to neurology and nephrology. Okay. Within the coming months, it'll be a full automated system, appointment notification system across the board. In the areas where they have implemented this, they've seen a 20 to 24% reduction in missed appointments, which the end result is clear up some of the backlog in the wait list. Apparently it costs some millions of dollars with all the appointments that have been missed. And you know me, I'm in the world of personal responsibility, but I do think that the time between when you get your appointment and when your appointment comes, a lot could have changed. You know, it's a busy, busy world. Maybe your symptoms have waned. Maybe you just simply forgot. And like I mentioned yesterday, I try to remember, I remind myself every day to check my personal calendar so I don't miss stuff, medical appointment or otherwise, because I hate missing things. I'm sure the bulk of you feel the exact same way. So hopefully this goes some way to helping it out. So what's going to happen? If you're not already registered for an automated notification, the next time you're seen, you'll be given the option to get a text, an email, or a phone call. And when you get it, just like when I get a text to remind me of my hairdo, I get an option to cancel. So this is probably a good thing, and hopefully it can be expanded even further. But my question would be, in 2023, how is this not already a reality? We've been talking about missed appointments since I've been sitting in this chair, and now when push has arrived at shove, now we're going to see expanded to all appointments and reminders for the patients. So anyway, I'm going to take it on. Let's do it. And of course, inside the world of healthcare, we brought forward the story yesterday about the emergency rooms close closing. Uh, in lots of parts of rural Newfoundland and Labrador, one such area that we spoke to yesterday and heard from some residents overnight is down in Harbour Breton. If you have an emergency on a day where the ER was closed, it's 223 kilometers to the next option for emergency care in Grand Falls, Windsor. So those stories are still on the table if you are so inclined. How are we doing out there this morning, David? A couple of quickies here. Do you follow the COVID numbers any longer? I mean, I guess I do. You know, I see the stories. Many Thursdays, they pop up after the province updates the hub on Wednesday. I don't know how reliable some of the numbers are. There seems to be some curious features of how the math is arrived at. But anyway, I'm just wondering what people do about it because it's not that long ago. It doesn't seem that long ago where it was every single day and we were overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed and I got very quickly tired of it. Not that we didn't need to be informed and know what's going on where we live. But I wonder, does anybody follow it any further? You know, we've been told that the emergency is over, but the virus has not gone away. I, I get it. Have people changed their behaviors? I think so. 
mean, even if you just look out how people congregate, where they go, how they behave when they get there. But anyway, I know people are sick and tired of it, and you can count me into that group. doesn't mean that it's gone away, and I'm not mindful, but I choose not to be fearful, as I have been throughout the entirety here, try not to be like that, nor talk about it like that. But I wonder what you think of those particular numbers. And I got some buddies in harm's way in Alberta. In many provinces and territories are responding to the wildfires, some 81 wildfires in Alberta. So many of you probably have friends or relations in the area that, whether it be evacuations in place and or the fires are close enough by that they're worried. Hasn't been any air quality evacuations at this point, but, you know, and wildfire season's coming here. We still need to know what the province is going to do to ensure that the water bomber fleet is up to snuff. We had five, down to four. The story, of course, the water bomber struck a rock some years ago, and we've never really figured out what to do with it, repair it or sell it or order a new one or whatever the case may be, but thinking about my buddies in Alberta and hope you're doing okay. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openlineofvocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we caught someone in the hallway. It's been a long, long time since we had guests in the studio. Joining us this morning is Dr. April Pike. She's the interim dean of the School of Nursing at Memorial University. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Pike. Thank you very much for having me again. So let's go talk about the expansion of seats because the concept is the more we graduate here, the likelihood they'll stay here. So what has happened in the recent past to expand the number of seats in the offerings at Mona? So we've been very fortunate at Memorial in that uh, we've worked very closely with the provincial government in order to expand our seats. And in the last year, we've doubled our seats out in the rural regions of the province, which is really significant, being that students or you know young people get the opportunity to do nursing education in the rural communities where they live, where they work, and where they play. So we have... Uh, recently in last year we're going into our second year in September have these satellite sites we have one in Happy Valley Goose Bay one in Grand Falls Windsor and one in Gander so essentially at full capacity which we are we'll have 72 new nurses entering into the program each year so that's really important for uh, meeting the needs of our rural population. Another initiative that we recently was announced that the provincial government provided $2.2 million uh, to start up to double our nurse practitioner seats. This is also is a fantastic opportunity because, as you know, that we need more nurse practitioners and there's a lot of hype about the good work that nurse practitioners do and how they can actually uh, alleviate some of the stresses in the healthcare system. So these are really good, positive initiatives and we have a bridging program that is offered through the Center for Nursing Studies for licensed practical nurses. Generally, we have uh, like 16 people come in and they bridge from a licensed practice nurse into the second year of our Bachelor of Nursing program. This year, we've actually doubled. So we have 33 people that will go into the second year of the Bachelor of Science in Nursing and graduate in two years. So we really uh, have a lot of initiatives. We've collaborated with the provincial government and our partner sites, Western and uh, Center for Nursing Studies, in order to bring this to fruition. So I'm really excited. Like, there's great opportunities for nursing. When you, man- you mentioned collaboration with the provincial government, now that there's been amendments made to expand the scope of practice for nurses, is there an opportunity to address some of that while they're in university versus working on the floor? You know, for instance, we're prescribing drugs. So it's going to take three different mod- modules. There's going to be some oversight. We don't know about getting paid for extra work being done. Who's going to provide the supervision? What that means for actually p- 
people working on the ward or working on the floor. Can that be incorporated into the Munn School? Uh, right now, it's not incorporated into Memorial. Our focus is the undergraduate nursing program and producing graduates at our uh, at foundational knowledge. And then in our nurse practitioners, we actually can prescribe. Mm-hmm. So this initiative is from the College of Registered Nurses of Newfoundland, and that is looking at prescribing uh, medications under certain health authorities in certain particular climates. Mm-hmm. The stories about the work-life balance and the stresses of being a registered nurse or a nurse practitioner or an LPN or anyone in the healthcare system, how do we begin to craft a message that nursing is a fulfilling, enriching job to have, doing important work, and the respect that we owe to our registered nurses and all healthcare professionals? How do you craft that message? Because when people read the news, they're like, my goodness, I thought I wanted to be a nurse, but I see that. I'm like, maybe not. And nursing has struggled with work-life balance. Uh, I've been a nurse for 33 years, and I've been in some pretty precarious situations myself. And a part of it is having the appreciation that we need to have time off. Nurses need to spend time with the family. But as well, I think if there's nurses listening today, uh, I think you will have a, say, a nod their heads in that each nurse has had the experience that really hones in on why they've come into the nursing profession. Everybody is, uh, our patients are really important to us. And nursing has morphed and changed over the last 20 years. Traditionally, people would think as a nurse as uh, someone who's always at the bedside. And that is a critical foundational piece of who who we are as a professional practice discipline. But there are many other opportunities. I was practicing at the bedside. I merged into nursing research, and we have several nursing researchers that are really impacting the healthcare system. We have uh, Dr. Julia Luke, which is actually doing a phenomenal project in primary care. We have a group of, of nurses across Canada, which I'm a part of, looking at genomics and integration into nursing care. And you know all the genetic challenges that we have right now and one of my PhD students actually is looking at doing our PhD in genomics. We also have research going on in transition of new nurses into practice and and mentorship. There's also the administration and of course is the nursing education. So at Memorial we've been really really focused on making sure that our graduates are prepared uh, our faculty are highly qualified, and uh, I'm going to take a plug in saying that if we think about it, uh, we're probably one of the strongest programs across Canada. Like recently, McLean's, is, which is responsible for highlighting the top nursing programs in Canada, we were rated on professional reputation as number 11 and number 13 overall. And that's that's really stellar. And considering that we've got Gold Star seven-year accreditation for the last 28 years and 100% on our Canadian registered nurses licensing body that do an overview of our program. So we have a, a stellar program. Our graduates are really well sought out all over the country. Even when I graduated 33 years ago, when people heard that you were a nurse from Newfoundland, they wanted you. And they continue to want our graduates. Of course they do. And it's been a very competitive landscape across the country because provinces are kind of pitted against each other to try to recruit and then consequently to retain professionals, including registered nurses. So you talk about the foundational knowledge and the clinical expertise to be a professional practicing registered nurse. How do you approach it inside the nursing school to talk about the realities of being on the floor? So whether it be counter arguments against some of the negative news stories we hear, whether it be preparation for the emotional challenge that is in front of them as a professional registered nurse, 
first. How do you do that? Because that's kind of philosophical as much as it is building on foundational knowledge and clinical expertise. Absolutely, and you're, you're absolutely correct, correct. And during this uh, COVID pandemic, we've had to pivot a little bit, but in our program, we have like professional leadership courses. We give them an opportunity to actually go through conflict resolution. And we have clinical placements where they're actually uh, working on the floor, doing 12-hour shifts under the direction of a registered nurse and also in collaboration with an instructor. So there's opportunities for debriefing, opportunities to discuss how do I navigate the situation, what do I do when, and in a safe environment. And that's really important for like growing our, our nurses to have these skills in order to make informed decisions in this climate. So we really have a strong lens on evidence-based practice. So what informs your decision-making? Reflective thinking so that you can make safe decisions and you can take into consideration all the variables and the climate that we're actually. So I actually think our graduates are more prepared now because we've had to pivot a little bit with our teaching in order to address some of these stressors that our new nurses are actually uh, experiencing. And our nurses are coveted and they're coming from other provinces to try to recruit them. Talk about the process with the collaboration with the province for recruiting them while we have them. You know, we've got a captive audience You're right here in our nursing school. What does it look like when the province comes calling or the regional health authority or the department comes calling to ensure that nurses are, are shown and presented an opportunity to stay and work here? What does that look like? And is it focused simply on things like long-term care? We've heard those stories as well. So talk about recruitment. So when we, when we uh, specifically think about recruitment, Recruitment, and I've had a few discussions with the provincial government, and there are initiatives that are put in place for our graduates. For example, there are uh, bursaries and scholarships, particularly this one for $5,000 for our students entering third and fourth year, but there is a return to service, and there actually is a recruitment at the end of their education for people to stay within the province. One of the things that are really important about Newfoundlanders, and we all know, Newfoundlanders generally want to stay in their communities. So one of the recruitment strategies are these satellite sites so people that are in the rural regions get to be educated there and hopefully we will get them to practice there as well are they being offered jobs across the board you know because we hear stories and sometimes it's hard to know you know to separate the wheat from the chaff they say most of the job offerings now are simply in the long-term care setting because we know that if you start there and get it right you probably deal with a lot of things like emergency room congestion backlog for surgeries what have you if we had the staff to have a people who are in a hospital in a long-term care bed so has that been a prime focus we hear those stories nurses are being recruited everywhere okay so if you are currently in our program and traditionally like in my 33 years i've never had a job seeking employment and one of the interesting things about nursing and one of the opportunities is that it's a lifelong learning and you can move anywhere you're totally transportable so you can work on surgery you can work in the intensive care you can work in the emergency room labor and delivery and long-term care of course we have an aging population and mm -hmm. you think about the health accord one of the highlight factors there is we want to have an aging friendly community so in these collaborative health care clinics nurses will play an imperative role to be out and seen in the community and addressing some of these issues that are facing the aging population
We know it's the responsibility of the provincial government when we talk about credentials and the transferring of credentials for healthcare professionals recruited abroad, doctors in Ireland, nurses in India, what have you. I know that's the responsibility of the government and the college. What role can your nursing school play to ensure that people are here, are tested for and standardized, test, standardized testing, and get out on the floor? Yes, and, and that doesn't um, fall under the preview of Memorial. That no. follows on the preview of the CRNL. So they have checks and balances in place for international educated nurses that are coming from abroad, and they actually can participate in uh, a bridging course that is offered at the Center for Nursing Studies. So that is something that they're actually looking at now, how to onboard graduates, international graduates, so that they have the uh, requisite skills to practice in a safe, competent manner in the province. Well, we know how critically important one of the linchpins of healthcare will indeed be nurse practitioners, LPNs, and of course, registered nurses. Really appreciate your time this morning, Dr. Pike. Nice to see you. Thank you very much. That's Dr. April Pike. She's the Interim Dean of the School of Nursing at Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, Mike's in the queue, or Michael, pardon me, to talk about the Ultra Newfoundland. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let us go to Line number two, Michael Boyle, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Uh, before I talk about the ode, uh, just reference to your last caller. It, it, it's gratifying to see the great work being done by nurses and the fantastic work that's been done at the Memorial as, as a, an alumni of Memorial. Uh, it's an amazing institution, and I'm very proud to be uh, an alumni of uh, Memorial. So my comments today uh, are, would be directed more at the leadership component uh, when we talk about the ode. Uh, and uh, you're aware, uh, Patty, of the uh, you, you, when you make a mistake, we all make mistakes in life but uh, you know you go back again and do the same one you know you, you think you might learn right and and the thing about the the uh, old to newfoundland in terms of national anthems and, and this was pointed out to me by uh, dave benson uh, fairly recently uh the newfoundland uh, old is the most inoffensive national anthem in the world uh, and it's ahead of its time it has a weather forecast. You know how we're talking about the weather? We always talk about the weather. It's symbolic of the place. Uh, and, of course, uh, that leads us into climate change when you talk about the weather. So, so uh, it's just amazing, inoffensive uh, kind of uh, anthem. And um, you, when you have uh, uh, the, the leadership, or, or perhaps I should say lack of leadership, lack of leadership, there seems to be a kind of leadership that's not in sync with the local community. I, I don't know if you agree with that. I do. You know, when the changes were brought to bear with the Canadian National Anthem. Very similar references or concerns were voiced, not by me, but by some. Whether it be God guard thee, as loved our fathers, so we loved. For, you know, again, it's not for me to say how people should feel when they hear something, see something, experience something, but I do have a hard time believing or understanding how that could be seen as to be so offensive that has long been the province's official national anthem, you know, twice back in 1902 and then again in the 80s after we dropped it after joining Canada. If that really does... Yeah, insult people, I'll be surprised. Now, if, yes. if it, that's the case and they feel that way, th- I won't taunt or tease or mock anyone who calls to share those concerns, but I'm just surprised to know that they may be as... The, the numbers are there for this to be dropped out of a ceremony at Memorial University. I, I just find it all to be... Yeah, it, it boggles the mind. And I mean, you think of... You, you think of universities like Oxford University in Cambridge. Uh, you know, if you imagine them tinkering around with the uh, God Save the King or, uh, or in the U.S., Harvard and these places tinkering around you, you, you would think you'd have other things to do, and uh, and it, almost uh, the image I have a memorial at the moment of the leadership component is like a, rudder, a rudderless ship, and they got the SOS and the 
took down the SOS. <laughs> They're just a runner of the ship, uh, and you know, and uh, and it's uh, you know the, the the whole the whole aspect of uh, inclusion. I think you mentioned it. Uh, you know, inclusion doesn't mean you leave out something. You know, totally, uh, uh, and it it, uh, it baffles the mind. I was glad to see the members in the house, and I hopefully they'll follow through in this. I mean, there's there's one solution. Uh, if we have a couple of members in the house who are going to sing the ode, as they said, we have it on tape, and a few other hundred people join in. Uh, you know, uh, it could be an interesting uh, convocation. You know, if people start singing in, but that's another story for another time. But there there is a leadership vacuum, and I, I don't know how, how how people can get around it. And, and it's at the Senate, and it's at the uh, the, the whole the whole. Um, you know, the Board of Regents, you know, the accountability is just un- unbelievable or lack of. You know, understanding who people are, where they come from, what's important to them, their traditions and culture and what have you. There's, uh, I'm certainly all for listening and understanding and speaking about these issues. And, you know, if we talk about the indigenous communities that may indeed have felt excluded, I think we, if you add the O to Labrador, then we've covered off all the provincial bases that we can. If we're talking about international students, certainly there's been accommodations and spaces made for them, whether it be for prayer or for their community to gather and to get support from the province and the university in general. So, again, I would be shocked if someone was at Mons Med School uh, from India or from Saudi Arabia or wherever else has been insulted or felt excluded with a very minor, albeit in my personal opinion, important component of a convocation ceremony. So my final thoughts, and I'll let you wrap it up, Michael, is every single time when you try to please every single person, it is a fool's errand. It can't be achieved. It's just actually impossible to do. So to broaden for in, in the area of inclusion, fine. But to exclude something, pretend now we're including everybody, it just doesn't even make any sense. So I'm not personally offended. I'm not all up in arms. But I just am scratching my head as to why this even came to pass. I mean, who started this ball rolling? Many people will say it's former President Fianne Timmons, uh, given the fact she lived in Labrador, wanted to see Labrador reflected. Fine. But we have a beautiful uh, hymn for the to Labrador, sung to the melody of O Tenenbaum, that maybe we can, if, if people don't know it, maybe we could put a song sheet in the hands of everybody in attendance at the Arts and Culture Center or anywhere else to sing both. Why not? Absolutely. And I, I think the, the way, you know, the audit might find this out when they, when they do an audit. In terms of leadership, uh, perhaps we need ter- the time for a, a local leadership. We need perhaps m- more of our, our Memorial uh, uh, alumni back teaching at Memorial. So I think the, the uh, leadership has opened up a can of worms and where it goes who knows i appreciate the time swirling michael okay thank you very much take good care of yourself bye-bye Bye. Uh, an observation shared by a listener via Twitter is that the ode isn't being done away with, just not played a convocation. He doesn't have a problem with this, th- with this decision. He thinks he's in the minority. I think he's probably right. No, it's not gone away. This is not what people so quickly say it's censorship or any of these types of things or it's stifling free speech. It's just some traditions I think are absolutely worth preserving. And, you know, if references to God guard thee, Certainly, there are agnostics or atheists that would be over at the Swatter's rugby pitch singing mightily and full-throatedly along to the Ode to Newfoundland with very little reference or concern about a reference to God. You know, it's not like we are trying to indoctrinate anybody. We're not shoving things down people's throats. These are the type of catchphrases that people use on these types of matters. And some traditions just seem innocuous. And some traditions are absolutely important to a load of people. And this is one, I think. 
And again, the issues that face the people of the province, this is probably way, way down the list of concern or priority. But when emotions are brought into the conversation, of course it's going to rise a little higher up the list. Now, will it be short-lived frustration, anger, disappointment, or applause? Probably. Let's keep going here. Let's go to line number one. Jeff Coughlin, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, thanks for taking my call today. Um, I am not sure if uh, anyone has spoken about this in um, oh, in recent shows or not, but it is uh, in relation to, I guess, some common ongoing uh, fraudulent schemes. Uh, I know people have heard about this grandparent uh, scheme where they, you know, they're contacted as if their their grandchild is is uh, in trouble or whatever. But I would like to make people aware of another pervasive uh, fraud that's going on. And, you know, everyone has, you know, uh, a home phone, internet and cable package from the major providers. And something that is fairly common now is uh, a homeowner will be contacted by a purported representative of, uh, you know, either Rogers or Bell. And this is an attempt to get their personal information. So uh, it'll take a little bit to explain this, but uh, I'll give you an example of, you know, I'm someone who is, you know, fairly, you know, educated, intelligent, wary of, of fraud. And I'll give you an example of calling it out and then someone, despite all of that, uh, being, I guess, taken in. So. I, uh, my internet package, the two years expired. So I was looking, you know, I was around that time when I, I'd play the game where you say, oh, well, I'm going to go to the other guy, step to that, to that. So I was contacted by someone, supposedly from Rogers, uh, told all about a great package, this and that. And I said, you know, I'm pretty interested, this and that. And he said, okay, now I need your social insurance number. I said, hang on, buddy. What do you need my social insurance number for? He said, oh, we got to see if you have outstanding this or that. I said, you are crazy if you think I'm giving you my social insurance number. And I hung up on him. Contacted Rogers, let them know that someone was looking for my sin said, you know, we don't do that. So recently, an elderly relative of mine uh, contacted me and said that she was contacted by a purported representative of Bell. Now, she was weary, too, and, you know, they spoke about all the packages, this and that, and she said, I am not doing anything until I talk to uh, someone about this. So she contacted me. She had all the information written down. So then I went back, uh, I went over to her house, phoned this number, and spoke to this purported representative. Now, she listed off all kinds of information about, you know, the Internet and uh, cable packages, this and that. And she said that she uh, would send an email uh, summarizing everything. So we waited, and the email came. It was all the, the bell uh, graphics, you know, the whole works, laying everything out. And we said, okay, that looks great. And uh, then the conversation switched to, okay, um, we're going to upgrade your uh, relative's modem. And what we'll do is we will send uh, that modem to you. And when that's received, uh, you contact us and then we'll get your um, technician lined up. Now, and in part of the conversation, I, so they already had her email address. And then we got this 
great looking bell graphics. One component, and this is where you get hooked, we just need to confirm your uh, credit card information, right? So, so then that was given, unfortunately. But then what happened was uh, my relative received a package, and it was a cell phone and not the modem. She was contacted and said, there's been a mistake. Another customer's cell phone went to you, and your modem went to this other customer. We'll send you a prepaid UPS uh, packing slip. If you could take that up to uh, Staples and send that uh, off, and then we'll get your modem sent to you. So uh, not long after, my relative, uh, her bank, uh, flagged a fraudulent uh, or a potentially fraudulent um, charge on her credit card. So what it is, is the scammers get the credit card information, purchase a cell phone, get that sent to the customer. Then they say, listen, you've got, it's been a mistake. And then that, uh, you know, victim sends this uh, cell phone to the perpetrators and then they sell the cell phone or whatever. And when, and here, you know, here I'm Mr. Cautious, but I, you know, my relative said, oh, uh, you know, Jeffrey, can you do this? And, you know, bring this up. So I brought it up to Staples and I, I said to the, the girl, the counter, geez, I said, you know, my relative got this uh, thing, um, uh, phone instead of this motor. And, she, and the girl said, gee, that's been happening a lot lately. Right. So anyway, it all, you know, it all came to me, figured it all out. That's where the fraud occurred. So I contacted Staples and just let them know, just be aware that you're inadvertently, you know, facilitating. So if you can put on a sign up in your store, if, you know, you're, you know, this cell phone type thing. I've also contacted the RNC and let them know. And then they said for me to contact the Canadian <clears throat> Anti-Fraud Agency. So... I just want your listeners to be aware that, you know, everyone's looking to get the best deal in their internet package or, or what have you, right? And uh, there's a lot of people being contacted, uh, you know, and, you know, my sister-in-law had someone come and knock on her door yesterday and was quite aggressive about offering her some package. And when she said, no, like he rolled his eyes and stuff at her, right? So be aware if anyone is phoning you, that and pur purporting to be from one of the providers, your due diligence is to thank them and then phone the actual company. Because, you know, I'm very cautious, you know, educated and, you know, consider myself to be half intelligent. But due to, you know, the, the fact they had my mother's email, uh, they sent this very legitimate looking uh, email with all the, the bell graphics, etc. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, And, you know, I have this, you know, terrible feeling, you know, uh, of being taken in by it. But I don't want anyone else to. And I've looked online <clears throat> subsequently, and this is you know, out there online that this is, is a scam, right? So, I appreciate the heads up. Any awareness campaign regarding the relentless scammers I think could be helpful. And if it spares one person from being bilked, I think it's worth it. Appreciate this, Jeff. All righty, take care. You too, take care, bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me, let's go to line four. Doc, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you, 
morning. Not too bad, I suppose. How about you? Uh, it's a great morning. Sun is shining, the sky is blue. you got to love it. And little to no wind, which is my favourite. And little to no wind, and you know, it's all about Newfoundland and Labrador and who we are and what we are. I'll get to that now in a second, but first I want to just have a chat with you about Goss Echegiri. Yep. Now, I never knew Goss. I never met him. But I, I used to listen to him talk about the fishery uh, every single time, I think, that, that he called you. And I could feel the passion in his voice. I could feel the concern in his voice. I could feel the frustration that he felt about all the poor decisions that had been made on our fishery since Confederation and probably before Confederation. Uh, I could feel the frustration that he had when he talked about the promises that were made uh, in terms of the uh, uh, the authority, the uh, the ocean limit, uh, promises that were never kept on a federal and provincial level, the lack of a champion for the fishery uh, bureaucratically or again on the federal or provincial political level and uh, you know is he ever 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 going to be missed and if if politicians uh, even today if bureaucrats and politicians had had any feeling and any sense at all about the importance of the fishery to the Newfoundland economy they'd sit down and read what they could about what Gus Echegaray knew about the fishery and how he felt it might be rectified and put back to where it was as, as for hundreds of years, one of the building blocks of the Newfoundland economy. And even today, again, it is one of those building blocks. It's in a mess right now. There's no leadership right now. There's nobody taking hold of the uh, the whole issue of the fishery and how we can right that ship. And unless somebody does it, we're going to lose it. And if we lose the fishery, we lose a large part of our culture and we lose a large part of rural Newfoundland and Labrador. And it's really a pity. It, it just, just listening to Gus Echegaray gave people who really felt for the fishery gave us hope, you know, that something could still be done and something can still be done, but we need a leader like Gus Echegaray to carry it out. Sure, and you know, I think even Gus would admit that there is no easy fix at this moment. There just simply right. isn't. I mean, there's, I, I can rattle off 10 issues off the top of my head that need attention, and who's responsible for making those adjustments or amending uh, rights the wrongs of the past and try to get us back on course because you know when you have a disjointed management of system period you know it's hard to manage a, a Newfoundland Labrador fishery from Kent Street in Ottawa then there's simple things that I just don't know why we can't look at best practices elsewhere and just to make tiny baby steps year over year to get us where we need to be here you know the simple things the harvesters talk about bycatch and body up and trip limits and how the processing sector works and who gets 
just to buy the product. And then you factor in the foreign fishing fleets and the percentage of the, uh, whatever it is, the total allowable catch for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and the inshore, factor in how much tonnage foreign fleets are allowed to take out of our waters. It's also fascinating conversation to have. You know, pick a species and we can find out very quickly who's fishing at all. And we're not fishing at all. We're not even the primary beneficiary here. So even if you just started with those baby steps from what the harvesters talk about, and then if the Fisheries Act federally said a couple of very clear things, one being adjacency, if that was enshrined in legislation, then we'd have better policies, more profit for the people of this province, landed value still in excess of a billion dollars most years in the fishery, but if adjacency was the guiding principle for every fishery policy, we'd be better off just with that and that alone. That's right, and I mean, that's where leadership comes in. You know, every cause, <clears throat> no, no matter what it is, every cause in order to be successful needs a champion. And right now, we, we badly need a champion for the Newfoundland and Labrador fishery. You know, the very fact that we had a moratorium that was supposed to last four years, and here we are 30 years later, and we worse, we're worse than we were back when the moratorium was brought in. How, do you, how does science justify a moratorium that was going to last four years and we're still into a moratorium 30 years, we're no further ahead? So I, I guess unless we have a champion and somebody who's going to take hold of it, we'll be the same way 20 years from now. Well, we're actually talking about formal... Uh uh, formal strategies to rebuild stocks, but that was in 1992 when we should have been having that conversation that day outside the hotel versus in the recent past. It's as recent as Minister Joyce Murray talking about legislation for rebuilding plants that are triggered by X amount of percentage of uh, spawning biomass, for instance, in Northern Cod. My God, that, is, that conversation is 30 years overdue. Uh, very quickly, I know you want to talk about one more thing before I have to yeah, go to the news. The other thing, Teddy, uh, and I wish to God we had we had a, a man like, like Gus Etchegary, either uh, b- both here in Newfoundland, Labrador, and in Ottawa to take hold of what needs to be done and get it done. And, and the old Newfoundland and the university, look, fact, the old Newfoundland is the official national anthem of Newfoundland. No doubt about that. As such, the university and any other public function, the old Newfoundland should be sung. It is our national anthem. Uh, It is, you know, people talk about inclusiveness and different groups that need to be consulted. Well, the largest group that have been left out of this is the people of Newfoundland and Labrador because the old Newfoundland is about Newfoundland and Labrador. It's about who we are. It's about the weather. It's about the landscape. It's about the... The island of Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's about the people, all of us who live on this island and in Labrador. It's about the Irish, the English, the Scottish, the Ukrainians. I I can go down through the list of every person who lives in Newfoundland and Labrador and the love that we have for this place that we live in and hopefully will continue to live in for a long, long time to come. So for the university, the leadership at the university, to make this kind of a a mistake and to make this kind of a misjudgment is just a total lack of leadership. We need to get on with the reality. It is our national anthem. We, as such, it should be played at every public function. And don't make the mistake of thinking, 
thing about it's about people. It's about the place that we live in and all of us together who are citizens of Newfoundland and Labrador. I think you add the, the O to Labrador, we've got her settled. I appreciate the no time, Doc. about it. And this, I mean, there, look, there are more issues that Memorial University has to deal with, more important issues than this. Sometimes I wonder where these ideas get generated. Who comes up with, well, we got to do this and we got to do that and we got to do the other thing? I don't know, but for me, it's infrastructure deficit, it's uh, tuition, the Premier willing to engage in that conversation, to reinstate some of that money to put more controls on tuition, maybe then have a plan for, you know, annual increases as opposed to moratoriums or freezes that have led us down this particular doubling of tuition path. So uh, there's a lot at Mon that we need to be talking about. This one, of course, and look, again, it's not for me to tell people what they should be concerned with, but when emotions become part of the conversation, the importance level rises. And that's just indicative of how this is being handled, at, not only at the leadership uh, group at Memorial, but for the general public. You know, people reacted because that's, my, that's human my, nature. My advice to the university, get on with it, have, your, have the convocation, and I'm a graduate and a postgraduate of the university. And I've, I've never been so disappointed in that institution, not about the institution, but disappointment in the leadership that that is lacking at the university level and so right. my advice and I'll finish with this get on with the convocation play the old Newfoundland and then deal with all the issues that you have on your plate I appreciate the time thanks Freddie thanks Doc all the best bye bye uh, there's folks in the queue want to talk about retaining doctors Ted wants to talk about the playoffs love that and then we're going to talk about whatever you want to talk about don't go away Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two and say good morning to Eugene Manning. He's one of the three vying for the PC leadership along with Tony Wakeham and Lloyd Parrott. Good morning, Eugene. You're on the air. How's Patty Daly today? Best kind. How about you? Not too bad, Patty. I was, I was set up to call in yesterday, actually. I wanted to talk about moose licenses in uh, the allocation in the area of 42 and 27, residents and non-residents. As I was getting ready to call, I see this press release from Mon um, outlining that they're going to suspend the old again. And I thought this had been put to bed. And I took a minute, and I wanted to get my thoughts together because I think it speaks to a larger issue. And, and your caller earlier, Michael Boyle, pointed out, leadership at Mon and the province are completely out of sync with the people. And it's either that they don't, they don't care about the community or they don't understand it. And either way, that's that's a real challenge that we have here. And I think it sums up quite succinctly, actually. Uh, that's not unfair. I think the understanding part is probably the missing component here. I know Vian Timmons had an obvious relationship with the province. When's the last time we had a uh, president at Monday that was from here? Maybe Leslie Harris or Art May or somebody? Because, you know, Neil Bose might be a tremendous academic. I've, I've never met the man. And so I'm not going to uh, critique or criticize him too forcefully here because I don't know much about him. But understanding the community and what's important, it's not only an academic exercise, it's actually part of the societal conversation. High, institutions of higher learning are simply not about the learning. They're, bar, they're also about the community. So to have a firmer grasp on both sides would probably lead to better decisions, at least a better understanding of how we approach decision-making. Well, Mon has such a unique position in the province, and they would be the envy of so many other universities. When I say the university, both you and I know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Memorial. When they say they're going to consult with the community, 
Memorial University community is more than the alumni and the students, the administration. Everyone has an ownership in Memorial University, and that's something that they should be trying to bolster, not sever. When this came out the first time last year, I think I was working up in uh, Cormac or Reedville, and a couple of us were Mon alumni, and I'm a proud Mon alumni myself. Many weren't, but it was all people wanted to talk about. Mon has created over the years such a strong relationship, even by its very founding, with rural Newfoundland and Newfoundland in general, you mentioned this morning, and the, you go to Welcome Memorial website, the second line is Memorial has a special obligation to the people of this province. And it seems like they're doing everything in their power to break that connection. I mean, I don't know if you remember uh, Mon Extension, Patty. I'm not sure what that means. Sorry. The Mon Extension program was back in the 80s. I remember quite well at home. The the group at Mon, they used to go out and they'd set up technology to when they came to the shore, they set up in Seabreeze Lounge and they set up a local TV station for a week. And they'd go around and interview people and they broadcast it to the community. Okay. And the fact that this was 40 years ago, and I can still speak of it, and funny enough, getting ready for this, I was going through it last night, and they had a community meeting on the price of cod and the fact the cod was being shipped in their agenture. The more things change, I suppose, the more they stay the same. It's good to see the boys. It looks like they're going back crabbing today. But... They were working, Mon Extension was working throughout the province to build that connection and to get uh, social buy-in from people into Memorial University. That's how everyone feels part of the community. Dick's a wash. I don't know if you remember the Dick's Wash magazine out in the 80s and 90s. I do. Also, a Mon Extension program. And I can tell you, funny, I can tell you that when they came to the shore, one of the articles was, Mabel wants cable, but she's settled for a dish because there was no cable coming out to shore. The fact that I can remember that headline, which I thought was a quite good one at the time, 30 years later, speaks to the strong connection that Memorial University has with those people in those communities. Now, I'm all for inclusion and trying to include people, but why wouldn't, to your point earlier, why wouldn't we be trying to expand and to show our Newfoundland culture, Newfoundland Labrador culture, to our international students and that, those that come in from the outside to attend Memorial University? I, I don't know why that wouldn't be a guiding principle here. And again, I'm just, you know, I think Doc made the point was, who even came up with this idea to think that this is a problem you know if you add if we want to incorporate indigenous communities what have you and i think the ode to labrador would be a good step in that direction i can't speak for indigenous people because i'm not one but for international students you would think that exposure to our culture is part and parcel why they're here and they probably enjoy a lot of the idiosyncrasies and the cultures and traditions that are very unique to this province and probably maybe have a little bit of a giggle at it maybe fully embrace it so again this is all just a head scratcher, a bit mind-boggling for me. But, and it, I just, I just think it speaks to even with Mon leadership and elsewhere. Like I remember back a few decades ago now, uh, when I was in the engineering faculty, they changed entrance requirements, and I've, I've been pretty outspoken for a while. And the leadership at the time approached me, and they asked me to present to them about how those changes in prerequisites would impact someone coming from rural Newfoundland, because they knew at the time they had an obligation to Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to make sure that their program was inclusive to others, but also inclusive to, to the tax base and to the taxpayer and to the people who Memorial University was founded to support, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. I'm very worried that it's actions like this, and like I said, it'd be great to include the Ode to Labrador and incorporate other things into the convocation, but just to dismiss the Ode to Newfoundland offhand, it does nothing to help the relationship between Moral University and the community, and long term, that is something that we should be fostering and trying to grow. Appreciate the time, Eugene. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Pat. Take care. Eugene Manning is one of three who's vying to be the next leader of the Progressive Conservative Party of Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's go to line five. Ted, you're on the air. Good morning, uh, Pat. It was 
Morning to you. Good listening to uh, Mr. Manning there. He's a very impressive, very, very impressive young man. I, uh, I just, I'm not going to take up much of your time because I'm, I'm uh, taking up a sports because you've got some great topics on there this morning. Last time I was speaking to you a couple of weeks ago, we had a discussion. We were doing about Gresky and Bobby Smith, okay? And at the time, uh, something about the rookie card. When I went down to the coffee shop that afternoon, Lady come, she tapped me on the back. She said, uh, Ted, she said, I want to thank you. She said, Penny Daly. She was listening to the show, and she realized that she had put away a Gresky card years ago. And uh, it was when he played, when he left junior, he went with the Indianapolis Pacers, right? And then things started to kick in my head because he only played, I think, about six games. And from there, I think it was his dad, Walter Gresky, who handled it. He uh, went with the Edmonton Oilers. Uh, uh, Gresky, to my knowledge, was never drafted. If I'm wrong on that, please correct me. I'm not 100% sure. So, I'm sorry, I kind of had a little bit of a beep in my headset there. So what is the question? No, I say... uh, to my knowledge, Gresky was never drafted. That surprised me, okay? Most, most teams like these players come up in the draft, right? But anyway... He's not drafted in the NHL. If that's the question, you're right. He is, was never drafted into the NHL. Yeah, that was... What was the name of that league? The Indianapolis Pacers? Was it... The WHA. W, yes, okay? So anyway, but she... Uh, She's, you know, she she came along and she knows and told me thank you and and listen to our conversation. Okay. Now we get back to uh, present day situation, okay? Okay. Uh, last night, probably one of the better games I've seen in a long time. I watched that Leaf game and the uh, Florida game. You thought it was a good game? I did, yeah. I, I thought th- it was a really good game. Yeah. I thought I both I teams looked a little out. bit out of it. Pardon me. I thought both teams looked a little bit out of it. Well, it was pretty. <laughs> well, we got to differ, but it was good old style hockey, Patty. And everybody had the least. They had them ruled out. I walked in the coffee shop in the morning. Oh, they're going to be swept and fall. But you know, it's not over till it's over. I'm not ruling the Leafs out. I said to you a couple of weeks ago, possibility of an all-Canadian final. I think okay. the Oilers have a better chance of advancing than Florida or than. Uh, Toronto, but last night I watched the game too. Uh, they certainly tightened it up a little bit. It was a bit too freewheeling if you're a Leafs fan. Both teams only had 25 shots. Uh, I th- I didn't think it was a great game. I think the Oilers game. Unfortunately, I'm so bleary eyed and tired all the time because I'm watching so much hockey. But it's the Oilers who have a much better chance. Just in my own opinion. And of course, Penny, I never saw the Oilers game. Okay, I didn't see that. Right, but that Vegas team, that Vegas team is a tough team. Oh yeah. And that Florida team. It's a much better team than I even realized because I haven't followed this like I used to. But last year, I know, in the pool, I had it stacked with with uh, Florida players, and they went nowhere. But the addition of uh, Kachuk, is it? Yeah, Matthew Kachuk. Kachuk is our cup, right? And that Markov is a very, very... A dangerous player. He's a good player. Yeah, Barkoff is excellent. Goaltender Bob Roski is terrific. And again, you know, people that you don't really give a whole lot of attention to as being good players, but Bennett and Reinhardt have played great. Duclair is a nice player. Ekblad's a nice player. So they've got guys. Oh, they got talent. But one player that impressed me last night with the Leafs. I'm not a Leaf fan. I told you before, I'm Gordon. All my life, Gordy Howe, right? I was a Leaf fan as a boy. I was a Todd Sloan fan. But 
I call him the Cinderella Kid. Nylander, is it a Nylander? William Nylander, yeah. Yeah, I really, really think. Scored last night. Yeah, he was most... Uh, uh, most... Oh, my God. Most dedicated player. I guess he used a word there last night. I thought he played a tremendous game. I thought Mariner was good. I thought their defence really tightened up. But Matthews... Matthews needs a little bit more... I don't know, drive into or something like he's, he's a, a floater. Player. I mean, he can't take away or deny. I mean, he scored 60 goals last year and he had a pretty good year this year as well, but he just floats around a bit too much for me, my liking. Yeah, just like it's, the impression you get, and it's not fair, I guess, on my part to say it, but I get the impression sometimes just wish this was over so he go playing golf, okay? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know where, he's, where his head is, but if I had to pick one Leaf to start a team around, it'd be Mariner all day long. Well, Mitch Mariner's a great player. He's super no player. No question about it. And that's a good Leaf team. That's a very talented team. There's some great talent on that team. Right? Yeah. You got you got that uh, for them two people, two guys they picked up from St. Louis. There, uh, O'Reilly. O'Reilly and uh, the other guy I can never pronounce his name. Heck, I, I don't know, but he's a good player. Which I, one? I, I'm thinking, Akiari? I'm thinking the Leafs. Are, I'm, I'm not ruling them out. I know it's okay. almost impossible dream, but don't rule them out. Yeah. So you're talking about O'Reilly, which is an incredible pickup, I thought. And the other guy you're talking about is Akiari. Yeah, that's the guy, Patty. Yeah. That's the guy. Yeah. Okay. But I am going to. Now they might get bombed out in <laughs> Toronto in their next game because there is, they have better. They had been a better road team the year than they've been at home, right? So they're due for a good game, okay? Let's see what happens. Ted, I always appreciate the chat. Thanks for this. Yes, and once again, I'd like to say thank you. That lady really appreciated listening to it, and it brought her back. She she got got her card, okay? Lucky her, I'd say. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Thanks, Ted. She's got a good one there. That's a rookie card with Indianapolis, and that's when he changed from 9 to 99. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Patty. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, doctor attention. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number three. Pam, you're on the air. Yes, Penny. Uh, good morning for taking my call. Uh, I'm a first-time caller. Welcome. Uh, in 1969, I'm calling about the doctors, okay? In 1969 at Mon uh, School, there was a lot of doctors came out. All the doctors went in hospitals and clinics and everything like this. They took care of all the patients. Now they're saying we got shortage of doctors. How can we have shortage of doctors when uh, the premier was a doctor and he's one is bringing doctors in when we got clinics with doctors in they have to pay for their gear into the doctor's office and the secretaries and everything and why is the premier is not looking at where did the doctors go the doctors went because the government never done nothing with the doctors what we had and this is where I could not understand the doctors before. That are, if you got a doctor, got 2,500 patients for 45 years and retire and doing other doctors out around the bay, filling in for them, and you got another doctor had uh, another 30 years, and not retire, and they got a clinic care, and the doctor 
experience is not even helping the ones we got to bring in doctors. I can't understand things. Well, I'm not 100% sure I followed along with all of that. Um, The curious thing for me is that there's actually more doctors practicing in the province than ever before in our history. And yet, at the same time, we talk about doctor shortages. What we don't understand is exactly how many of those doctors are practicing with a full patient roster or working in their discipline versus research or uh, simply teaching at Memorial University or whatever the case may be. But it kind of doesn't make much sense to me when we have more than ever, but we talk about a shortage. I can't understand that because I can't. I have uh, one doctor was in for 45 years. I have another doctor. When the COVID came in, he was still open to the public. I don't understand why we got a shortage of doctors when we always managed with the doctors who came out of school in 1969. I just can't. And now, they're bringing in doctors. When we got doctors here, paying for everything and Farian is not doing the premium is not doing nothing with them not even helping them you know to get your ear checked the little thing to go in your ear to get your ear checked you'll know so many of them it's eighty dollars it's time for the premium to realize the doctors is here 30 and 40 years not the ones that's coming in and getting big raises. That's like the nurses. The same thing means I have a friend who was out to a hospital, had a brain operation, turned around. We went to visit him. The nurse looked up, came in the room and looked up and said, I'm bored to another nurse. How can you be bored if you're a nurse? How can you be bored if you're a doctor? You know what it is? The government got everything fooled up. I think it's time for us to take a place and get the government out. All the government is not doing us any favors. I appreciate the time as a first-time caller, Pam. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, inside healthcare, but a different one. I brought it up yesterday in the preamble that in the United States, uh, an organization that looks like things that like the age of eligibility for mammograms. Right now in this country, for the most part, it's at 50. Now in Alberta, you can get one when you're 45. There can't be exemptions offered. But in this province and a variety of other, I think it's a half dozen or seven provinces in the country, it's 50. Join us on line number six to talk about this particular issue with Sherry Stringer. Good morning, Sherry. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. You and I exchanged emails because uh, you heard me talk about this issue and responded with an email. Tell us your own story, and then let's move off to the age of eligibility, eligibility issue. Okay, yes. Um, well, talking about having mammograms um, starting at the age of 50, uh, well, that wouldn't work in my situation. Um, right now, I'm 45. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer at 43. Um, and the reason I was having, um, first of all, go back to my family history. My mom had breast cancer when she was 48. Um, her sister had breast cancer when she was 48. Another sister had breast cancer at 49. And her other sister had breast cancer at 63. So that's four sisters, um, two of which are now still living. So because of this family history, I was having mammograms 
since I was 30. So that's, and I was diagnosed, I was actually having a mammogram every month and MRI, breast MRI every month. So every six months alternating. So right now I'm 45. Um, at 43, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So after four surgeries, uh, finally I had to have a full mastectomy. Actually, it was two years today. Today's date, I was just getting out of the o- going, probably going into OR right now. Um, so if I had to wait, right now I'm 45, if I had to wait another five years, the possibility I wouldn't be here if I had to wait for a mammogram. Let me ask you a question about family history. If you do indeed have a family history as you described, does that mean that through your doctor and a referral that you can't still get a mammogram prior to the age of 50? Because that sounds like exactly what we talk about when we talk about genetics or hereditary issues and the risks associated with them. And so is that available? I assume it is. Yes, it is. Um, Because of my family history and there's so much cancer um, my, my mom and my three aunts because of this um, they decided the um, siblings of my aunts the females the girls to get tested and scan- screened regularly so I was every six months and so now you're 45 and doing great. So what would be your message out there? Because it just doesn't mean that you're at a heightened risk simply because of family history. We know, and I have friends in my social circles, that prior to the age of 50 were diagnosed with breast cancer. If that move is being made by the Americans, and some thought here in this country, because the issue that was being brought forward all the time is the risk of false positives, consequently medical intervention that may be treatment that's unnecessary and can cause more harm than good. But I hear from oncologists in different parts of the country say those concerns are overblown and we should go back to 40 versus 50. So what would be your message when you hear people talk like that? Um, I would, uh, well, talking about false positives, I had one surgeon had said, um, no, it wasn't. And then after it came back from pathology, my samples in that, yes, um, I was in the early stages of breast cancer, very early stages where doing self-exams, if the doctors are asking, they recommend you do your own self-exam. Mine was that microscopic. You would never see it. You would never feel it. Um, so I would definitely say for to keep track of your mammograms and MRIs, keep up on it and regularly just keep up on it yourself and monitor it. I would say at the age of 40, minimum. Or at maximum, yeah, 40, 35, 40. Well, I guess the early intervention and the early diagnosis allows you to be 45 and feel a great and join us on the show. Yes. Yep, I'm uh, two years now, two years today, since I had my sports surgery and doing great. I'm really glad to hear it. The personal stories are much more effective and impactful than me talking about numbers and oncologists and American organizations and all the rest. So I'm glad you made time for us this uh, this morning, Sherry, and I'm really pleased to hear you're doing great. Thank you. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Talk away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Doug Morris. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. How are you? Excellent, sir. Thanks. How about you? 
Fine, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Uh, nice to hear that lady talk about a good news story when it comes to health care. It's certainly good to hear that. Absolutely. Uh, just want to call briefly with respect to the situation at Memorial University Radio to Newfoundland. I'm, I was shocked, absolutely, in consultation, talking to a lot of my friends yesterday. Afterward, I, the, the people can't believe that the university is so far out of touch with uh, what's going on in the province. Uh, you know, when you get the government of the day standing here in unison and the opposition singing the ode to Newfoundland, I mean, you know, what a, what a message that's sending to the, the people at Memorial who are supposed to be running the place and looking after the best interests of the students and the uh, the people of the province. I mean, I just noticed this morning your newest, your latest straw poll says that three percent of the people who voted on these straw this straw poll uh, have said that the university made the right decision. Ninety-seven percent basically said obviously that it was a wrong decision. I remember when this came out first when Dr. Timmons was the president. Uh, you did a straw poll uh, with respect to it, and ninety percent of the people of the province saw it was a wrong decision. I, I can only. I can't believe that they're doing this. I mean, they're losing the goodwill of the people who, who pay their bills and pay their salaries and want goodwill. And, and you know, the university, Patty, as you know very well, means so much to all of us. Not only those who went to Memorial, but those, you know, the parents, the grandparents, all these people who have a vested interest in the Memorial University to see the old being kicked around. I mean, I, I can't believe that the people who made the decision, whoever they are, uh, you know, uh, they got to wonder what where their heads are. I don't know. What, what, I don't know what you think, Patty. Well, what I think is that there seems to be a lack of understanding of the historical uh, historical significance of the ode because you can talk about spreading our wings and understanding what inclusion means in a setting which would have students from this province across the country and around the world you know opportunities for their cultures and traditions to be understood or respected but also for them to do the exact same for ours so if we know that the first province to ever incorporate a song as their own national anthem obviously means more than simply something song at the harder hockey game it's a bigger piece of the emotional fabric of the province and so if you don't include that in your deliberations but simply solely focus on who who might or might not feel excluded then i think you start at the wrong point you know because if you start with how important the tune is for so many and then incorporate how things can be adjusted at convocation ceremonies to reflect the diversity and more and more inclusion then you add things you don't take things away no, no, Patty, that's absolutely right. I think that's a very good point to start off on. You know, the old is cast in stone. The old is just, the old is our rock, you know, as far as I'm concerned, as a Newfoundlander and, and my father and grandfather and great-grandfather before me. I mean, this old goes back a long time. It's through all of our veins. I mean, so all I'm saying, and what, what a great public relations uh, uh, move would have been yesterday if Dr. Bowles had stood up and said, now, yeah, we, we, the old Newfoundland is going to be reinstated and played, replayed at all our convocations. However, we, we still have a committee involved to look at it maybe we can amend it or whatever the case may be but the ode is now going on don't you think that would have been a remarkable pr story instead of the negativity that's being cast out on memorial this morning well i think what it would have said to me is that we understand and we're going to add to through consultation what we think might be appropriate in addition to the ode because there's two distinctly different things you know if for instance if you add the ode to labrador which would reflect people from labrador including indigenous communities then you would have satisfied that concern that someone brought forward if it was about people who are traveled to uh, go to memorial university from other countries 
it doesn't mean we disrespect who they are, where they come from, their traditions and cultures. We, what we're doing is, is it's not about who you are, it's where you are and where you're graduating from. And if it's unique to us and it's something we're proud of, it is not in an effort to exclude you or to isolate you. It's to expose you to who we are, somewhere you chose to come, somewhere you chose to go to university, whether it be in one of the po- post-secondary uh, offerings like engineering or the med school or whatever the case may be. I think international students appreciate what we all have to offer, appreciate who we are and how different we might be from people that they're uh, familiar with in their own home countries or with their own religions or their own languages. I think we're actually adding to the richness of their experience versus trying to pretend that everything's got to be milky toast and we can't dare pretend we're going to offend someone because being unique is not offensive. Being unique is something that we can embrace. Yes, quickly, I'll just make one more point because I know a lot of people want to get in talk to you today about other issues. But but just just on, on one other point, I mean, in an in an in an effort to be in quote unquote inclusive, whatever that means. I mean, uh, you know, whatever that word is, whatever on whatever day of the week you're talking about. I mean, what they've really done, they single out here, maybe unintentionally, but real in reality, the Labrador students there who probably would love to have the old song, and they're singing them as a group in the international schools because only for you we would have had the old new. I mean, you know, how crazy is all that? It's making these people feel less inclusive. As you said, you summed it up so well. I mean, they're here, this Newfoundland, that's our national anthem. Stand up and sing the old. If you don't know the words, learn the words. I mean, but do not scrap the old to Newfoundland. And I call upon Dr. Bowes and the Senate, whoever else made this cockeyed decision, and also the Board of Regents, quickly here. The Board of Regents, you know, are made a representative of representatives of government, but there's six independent Board of Regents members here, you know, plus the Chancellor. Make a statement. Come out and say something about this. We just can't let this stand. So, again, Patty, thank you very much. I appreciate your insight and it's very well said, and you're doing a great job on the program. Keep up the good work, sir. I appreciate the time, Doug. Thank you. Thank you, sir. All the best. Bye-bye. And look, I do think inclusion is important. Why wouldn't it be? There's no downside to it, but you don't have to obliterate the past to make inclusion in the future, right? I think the definition of the word is just simply right there. You know, we include more. We don't ditch things, you know? I, I think there's realistic conversations to be had about, you know, names of buildings and statues and stuff, but those are vastly different, extremely different so we can include more and more but that does not have to mean we have to take away things of the past that have you know if someone says well it's too much colonialism involved in it, what have you then an addition for instance simply the ode to labrador does that not reflect an understanding of what the past means to different people from different backgrounds and to add to the ceremony to display that clear understanding i don't know man uh let's go line number four dana you're on the air hi patty how are you today not too bad thanks how about you good it's nurse appreciation this week and i want to say i must appreciate my nurses who take care of me again i'm sure they appreciate I mean, it i'm in Port Saunders hospital with the injury outside center and uh, i tell you man as i believe what they do for me patty so what's going on in your world where you're having to uh, appreciate your nurses? What's happening? How are you? The nurses, LPNs, PCW, kids, staff, a zombie man, I detect you in this house. I think the best in the world. They're certainly right up there. So, you know, what sometimes we think about is nurses running in and out, checking your vitals, giving you your meds and what have you. But it's that extra level of care, you know, to know okay. who you are, spend some time yes. with you. Right. And where I'm told they're going to help me with my meals, I don't believe what they do. 
Well, I'm able to cure you. How's your health? How are you feeling? Well, not better. No, I, I had a bad infection. And they got me powerfully, you know, but I tell you, man, I don't believe what a cure you're getting it. If every hospital is like this, man, you'd have, you'd have the best hospitals in the world. They're number one. I think by and large, now not to generalize, but the problem is getting into the system. Once you're there, we've got top quality pros who do oh, excellent number work. One, number one, number one. I'm glad to hear. I just want to know that especially on that much about. Well, Dana, hopefully the level of care you're getting is going to help your road to recovery. Yes. And thanks, Pat. I just want to know especially on that much about every one of them. Thanks for this, Dana. I'm sure they appreciate your kind words. Thank you. Take care. You want to go work, Next time, yeah. It's my pleasure, Dana. You stay in touch. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, you know, and again, <laughs> just broad strokes or generalizations are not really that helpful, but for the most part, for the vast majority of the parts, once you get in the system, you get the care. Now, there's going to be stories where I didn't like this, I didn't like that, I didn't like the bedside manner or the attitude or the misdiagnosis, and that's things that happen when you have a system that's run by human beings. Now, hopefully, those are the exceptions and obviously not the rule, but when you get in, we've got well-trained, experienced, professional top quality healthcare discipline representatives in the system. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, whatever you want to talk about, that's what I want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Veronica Vardy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Couldn't be better. Thank you. How about you? Oh, I'm good. I'm actually really excited. Um, There's a charity that's really close to my heart, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society of Canada. And every year they have a Visionary of the Year competition. And I'm excited because this year, for the first time ever, Newfoundland has its own candidate in the competition, and it just happens to be your colleague, Greg Smith. Absolutely. We've been trying to aid him in his 10-week fundraising competition. So what I – actually, I just called it a competition. Is that the right word? I think so because basically it's it's a fundraising campaign – but what they've done is there are various candidates to be that are nominated to be the visionary of the year and every fundraising dollar that each one raises is not only a dollar to fund the leukemia and lymphoma society's programs but it's also a vote for that candidate so at the end we'll find out who raised the most money and who is this year's visionary of the year and so what happens here? I know so it's a raising awareness and raising funds, but what comes with being the visionary of the year? So is it just you get a title or what do you, how do you want people to view this? I guess I'm excited about it because it would show uh, the country just how big the, the, how much the Newfoundland community stands behind each other and as well our blood cancer patients and um yeah it would be exciting for the for the person who has the title of the visionary of the year um for that award to go to to someone from our province yeah sounds good to me we're all in trying to support greg here and what do we need to know or how should we be talking about blood cancers like leukemia or lymphoma what do we what do you want people to know well um i mean blood cancer is one of the most diagnosed forms of cancer out there. 
and um, it affects a lot of people in our province um, right across the world. I mean, every few minutes someone is diagnosed with a blood cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society has a lot of great programs out there. I'm the mother of a blood cancer survivor, and I can tell you that when I heard that diagnosis, it was you know, it, it throws you on the floor. It just, it takes you back. And eventually you you want to seek out information and learn more about what you're facing. And to be able to access resources like the LLSC has available was just life-changing for us at that time. You know, they have lots of information online. It's all reliable. You're not, like, just randomly Googling stuff and getting getting wacky things back. So to be able to go somewhere and find reliable information and to access the their webcasts and podcasts and, um, uh, like, pamphlets. They have pamphlets that you can order and books that you can order. You're supporting research. Um, you're a bit, you're able to access research. It's just a great resource and um, yeah. <laughs> I know one thing. The website I had a look at it a while back because the conversation was being entertained here in our office. It was a really comprehensive website, if I remember correctly. Across the uh, the bookmarks at the top, you can be for whether or not you're a professional in the blood cancer community. You have it. You care for someone with it. You're a survivor of. There's even a support group component to the website, which is a little bit unusual, but I found it to be very helpful and easy to navigate. Oh, yeah. Like the support groups, you know, even during the pandemic, we were able to meet virtually. And they also have a peer support program where, you know, they match you up with somebody who has a similar circumstance to you, and then you're able to talk to someone who's been through, your, like, a blood cancer experience that mimics your own. So what do people need to do if they would like to support Greg or just the effort in general? Uh, well, he's got a lot of great information, actually, on his Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Radio Greg Smith. That's for all his campaigns and, like, different fundraisers that he's having, a pub crawl, a brunch, a concert. There's a silent auction, uh, cones for a cause. Like, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I've noticed that on his web on his Facebook page, there's a lot of um, fundraising events there. For um, To donate online to the Visionary of the Year competition, you can just go to bloodcancers.ca and link to the Visionaries of the Year uh, donation through that, or you can go directly to visionariesoftheyear.ca and put in Greg Smith as the candidate whose campaign you want to want to vote for, and it will go directly to to as a vote for him, but also will support all of the LLSC's programs and and uh, research. I appreciate the time. So there's the 137 different blood cancers, five main, and 40% or thereabouts of all childhood cancer diagnoses are blood cancers. So let's see if we can all get behind Greg and the initiative in full. I appreciate your time this morning, Veronica. Thank you. Thanks a million. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, uh, there we go. Let's go to line number one. Marion, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Hi there. Uh, I wanted to speak about this morning about doctors. Sure. Um, I had a, we had a family doctor, and um, 
he had said something to me that made me very uncomfortable. And so then this new lady came, a new doctor came. So I, we switched over to her. She told us she was going to be here for three years. And I don't think four months is up yet, and now she's going. So I have a lot of underlying issues that I need to be seen regularly by a doctor. And as of June the 9th, we don't have a family doctor. Where are you? Gander Bay. Gander Bay. Yeah, is there any talk, or has, does your doctor know if there's someone coming to replace, replace him no. or her? She don't know nothing. And if you if you go to emerge, like uh, you, you, it should be an emergency, not. And this on uh, hub number they got. That's almost impossible to get an appointment with them. Uh, what number are you talking about? Eight one one. No, um, three eight one one, three eight one zero one one two. It's called the hub, but I couldn't. I I can never get through to there. When I do, they'll say they're booked and they don't take a message. So the other morning, I needed to go in, so I went in so I could be the first one register, and. It was still after 1 o'clock before I seen a doctor, and she said, oh, yeah, because she had a lot of uh, in-visits this morning. Well, on the, on the line that they say, there is no, you can't make appointment. So I don't know. So that's the primary care health hub thing? Yeah. Okay. So is, like, a virtual health care uh, option work for you? In some cases, yes. Okay. But not in all cases. And, and the same thing with my husband. My husband got a lot of, both of us got a lot of uh, health issues, right? Yeah. Like, right now, I'm, I'm dealing with eight different diseases in my body. Oh, my goodness. And they had to be followed up. And, she, like, she called me yesterday. My doctor called me yesterday and said, well, you know I can't take you or give you a call anymore, but you need to be followed up. Well, it's easy to say you, you can be followed up, but how? So the health hub available to you or closest to you would be at Gander Medical, right? Yeah. Okay. And so you're, you're not having any satisfaction speaking with someone or you can't get an appointment? What was it that you said there? You can't, I can't reach them by phone. All I do is get their voicemail. Oh, okay. And so I said, well, we got up the other morning, 7 o'clock, so that we would be there when they open. But that don't work either, because you're not, you, you got the card number before you were allowed to be seen. Did you try out in Grand Falls at the Killick Clinic? No, I didn't because the clinic is um, the clinic is two and a half hours drive from me. Okay. And uh, my uh, my husband can't drive that far 
uh, without taking a couple of breaks because he's where he's where his legs are so bad. Well, I'm sorry to hear that as well. And for the folks at the Gander Medical Clinic, hopefully clear up the backlog of your voice messages because there's people like Marion who are looking to speak with you because they need a medical appointment. I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else this morning? No, just one thing about the guy, your, one of your gentlemen uh, was on there when I was waiting for you. Um, on February the 17th, I got I got fraud by Amazon Prime, and I've been ever since February the 18th to get my $2,000 back that they took out of my account. Oh, no. I got a call from that scam yesterday or the day before. They just won't leave you alone. I hope you get your money back as soon as possible, Marion, and I also hope you get that medical appointment ASAP. Okay, thank you. Appreciate your time. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. Those of you in the queue, we appreciate your patience. We'll get to you right after this. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back. Let's go say good morning to the leader of the NDP, the member for St. John's Centre. That's Jim Din. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and how are you doing? And thank you for having me on. Happy to have you on. Doing okay. How about you? Not too bad, sir. It's a, fi- a fine day. I've been uh, riding to work on the bike for the last little while, so it's finally getting to the stage where maybe I'll have to I'll, I can put away the, uh, the the fleece and that as I'm riding in. We're getting there. I mean, high of 15 tomorrow or something or other, so that's very appealing to me. How's your singing voice, Jim? Oh, I tell you, for impromptu, I've sung in choir, so I have I have been relegated to the uh, to the crow section or anything yet uh, but I'm you know I'm probably a legend in my own mind <laughs> uh, well I can join you in that so where are we going today what are we talking about well I wanted to have a little chat about uh, the housing uh, our Ukrainian newcomers and any newcomers and the, the housing issues here and I you know that's an issue that's been near and dear to my heart for well quite a while now uh, and I do want to make it clear uh, that you know I'm proud of the efforts that we uh, we stepped up and and um, took in uh, and, uh, Ukrainian refugees at a time when they when their country was uh, in, in in the middle of an invasion. Um, but I think in many ways uh, the government has failed to do the necessary work and to address these issues, do the hard work to make sure that well everyone who lives here, whether they're newcomers, whether they've been living here for the last 10, 20 years, or whether they were they were born here have uh, adequate housing and that's the issue uh, you've heard me speak to it before I've spoken to but to this issue on your show before um, but we had we had a housing crisis uh, uh, we were heading that way before we we were taking in uh, our newcomers from Ukraine and I don't know if if, if we failed I, I do believe that government has failed to address this issue um, and they need to do more. I know that from April last year, if you look at the uh, the dashboard by end homelessness, St. John's, the number of people who are in who are now uh, a chronic uh, suffering, experiencing chronic homelessness, has gone from 99 um, to 167 in March of this year. 
we know that uh, in Est- we know that the uh, people that the Ukrainian people who are newcomers are coming here are the the temp to stay in temporary accommodations and hotel rooms has gone from 30 up to over 50 uh, and I think uh, you know we've got to st- we, government's got to be serious about addressing this issue there are there are uh, ways we can start to do this but I think uh, I hope I hope that it, that the normandy of this situation is sinking in and that we address it. And by the way, not just here in St. John's. I listened to Leela uh, from Torn Gap Mountains in Jordan, from Labrador West. It's across the province, but I, I feel it especially so here in uh, St. John's Center. We've got people from, well, whether it's across the country, from outside the uh, country, from other parts of the province who do come to St. John's, and uh, it's, it's having an impact. Of course it is. You know, it's access and affordability all wrapped up yep. into one nasty ball insofar as the Ukrainians because people focus in on Ukrainians when in fact we've seen immigration from uh, yep. other countries we've got people from other parts of the country Canada moving to Atlantic Canada including this province with the immediacy of the issue with Ukrainians I think they get the highlight all the time yep. because you know it has been a lot of headlines surrounding them and the fact that the war prompted us to go to Poland set up shop in Warsaw to try to aid bringing people here it's a year ago a couple of days ago when the first plane load of Ukrainians arrived so I think they get a lot of focus. So your comment about PrEP, and I, I agree with it in, as a general concept because I said it yesterday, same thing with $10 a day daycare. Yep. If you don't have the PrEP and the foundational uh, processes underway or completed before you go ahead and execute $10 a day or bring in 2,700 Ukrainians or whatever the case may be. But how do you factor in how quickly that all happened? Because I get your point, but... That is, that's kind of different than, you know, the three-year forecast for the federal government, the 1.4 million, because they've got to do the exact same prep, which they don't seem to be doing. But how do you factor in the immediacy of the Ukrainian concern into your thoughts on the matter? So it's, and it's been a year. Okay, it's been a year, and we've watched in that year the, the crisis intensify. And and you, you made a point there, Patty, which I agree with, with regards to like you know the Ukrainians uh, are getting the uh, attention. And by the way, I like I I've got to be clear in this. I'm not blaming any uh, uh, group here. You know, people, we have a duty here to make sure that everyone has that housing, whether they're newcomers or otherwise. It doesn't make any difference to me. But it's interesting that 10 years ago, when I was uh, the NLTA president, I was spe- meeting with the school district uh, regarding Syrian refugees and about the lack of and lack of resources in the school system that we need to, uh, so that they, we can uh, uh, help the people who are coming in. And here we are, 10 years later. Now I'm, uh, we're talking about housing, but in the, in the school system, we're still finding that same shortage. At some point, I think, uh, th- there is an inertia there, I think, on part of government that uh, I don't know if they, they, they expect that, and I, it doesn't matter what political stripe, by the way, um, uh, that there's somehow there is a, uh, uh, that it's going to take care of itself. So here, uh, I've, been, I've been speaking to it. I know Leela has been speaking to it, and Jordan has spoken to it as well, with regards to the lack of affordable housing here. It's been growing since 2019 when I was first elected, um, we can see it in 2021, I think, that summer, uh, 2021, uh, that was the first time, I, or 20, last year, it's all collapsing into one time now for me, but the first time I was helping p- people who chose to live in, in Pippi Park because the shelter system was unsafe. There's no place for them to go. So 
I think we need to put a rush on. We've met with um, with uh, with regards to the uh, uh, the, uh, the the cooperative housing association of Newfoundland and Labrador. They have uh, ways of uh, uh, solutions, I guess, to make affording uh, housing affordable. They just don't have the funds to buy new housing, but they can renovate. It's it's uh, and uh, in the existing structures, there's a way for government to partner with them. Uh, there is uh, the, we we've seen in, in my time here uh, rents go through the roof. Rent go up to $200 uh, increase by 50 100 or $200 a month. Now, maybe for you, maybe for me, you know, we can absorb that. But I, I would t- say for some of the seniors and the people we're dealing with, uh, it, that that soon pressures them out. Trouble is, where do they go? Um, and, and so at some point, like, we, we went over to and actively recruited and brought people in. Great. Now we have a duty uh, uh, government has a duty to make sure that um, uh, that people are looked after. And I'll give you, uh, I guess, one I- ironic thing when, uh, in, in, when I was speaking uh, in, uh, the minister in estimates. He, he noted, admitted that there is uh, like uh, that the average stay in the hotel room or in the temporary accommodations is up to, uh, a little over 50. Yet the department has brought in a policy three weeks ago that basically has a 45-day um, uh, uh, cutoff. Now, knowing that that basically the number, that the time length of time has gone up to uh, from an average of 30 up to an average of 50 days, which means there's a, people are there a lot more. Why, in God's name, would you bring in a policy that basically caps it at 45? And knowing that, yes, no one's going to be turfed out. But why would you add that level of stress and anxiety to uh, to, uh, to people, knowing that the problem has gotten worse? So I think, in many ways, when government is approaching this. It's, there's going to have to be a strategy, a strategy we should have uh, uh, been dealing with before because it's only going to get worse. The demand for housing, uh, affordable housing, is going to uh, get uh, intensified. And you pointed it out accurately in that it's all rolled up in terms of affordability, rent increases. It's getting expensive for everyone. The demand is going to be there. So I think uh, I'm a big believer in like some sort of like a more port- uh, uh, affordable public housing, uh, and uh, that's the approach. The market housing system is certainly um, a, lot of, a lot of the issues we deal with with people trying to make ends meet. Anyway, I didn't mean to go on a rant like that. Well, that's okay. My apologies. And even the, the mortgage stress test is a little bit too stringent. Yeah. Oh. I'll throw that in. You know what? That you raise a good point because I'm looking at I, we've dealt with people who are paying a mortgage in rent. When you look, when you, they're paying a mortgage in rent, and they're and they're successful in that in, in doing that. They haven't defaulted on it, and yet they, they they're they're considered, I guess, a bad risk for a, a mortgage. I've always uh, I found that uh, that interesting. Uh, you know that you know that the people and they're they're consigned to this uh, perpetual renting at, at at a high price. But you're right, the the mortgage stress test does a. Uh, <laughs> Does uh, I think le- exclude people who would make good candidates for home ownership? Yeah, I mean, coming up with the down payment, I get it. Yeah. And owning a home is simply not a mortgage payment. No. Speaking as a homeowner, it comes with a lot of additional yeah. costs. No. But the stress test is just a dollop too strict or stringent, yeah. I think. Because you mentioned people are paying mortgage in, in rent. There's people paying way more to rent the unit than I'm paying on my mortgage. Yep, so I guarantee you. You're, you're, you're so right on that one. It's just, and, the, and, and with rent and the rentals are coming um, are becoming uh, tighter and and not only that but we've noticed like a lot more the the rents are getting increased and they 
they're getting increased significantly. So where do people go after that? Uh, you know, uh, you know. anyway, I, and it's not just here. I, and I don't want to make this sound like a St. John-centric thing. It's where I'm dealing with it here in, my, in the district, and we're getting people from everywhere, really. Uh, it's a large center, and understandably so. But I think if we're looking at growing the population in Newfoundland and Labrador, and if we're looking at uh, we need we need immigration, we need that infusion of fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, new cultural approaches, you name it, then I think we've got to make it very clear right now we've got to get moving on uh, and uh, uh, we want to keep people here then about making sure that there's affordable housing and safe and secure housing for everyone, whether they're newcomers, they've been, like I said, they've moved here 20 years ago or they were born and raised here, it doesn't make any difference, but people are entitled to that. Yeah, there's been two announcements, 750 affordable units, 850 affordable units, we can't get an update on the status of construction nope. or completion on those that's going to be important and you know there is a housing issue here and it's absolutely across the country as well so yep. we we can sometimes have to measure our message here because this yep. can be an attractive option for people in other parts of the country for outside of Atlantic Canada because the average cost of a detached home in Canada today is over $675,000 that's not the case here so we can uh, make an attempt to try to ease the housing crunch rental crunch and whatever for people who are here now or coming here or what have you but there's also a, a message upside here that I think we can incorporate now maybe in softer tones than speaking to the absolute concerns in front of us today but making this a, an attractive place to live for other Canadians is yep. also a message we got to try to dovetail it into addressing the concerns at the same time bingo, uh, bingo. and you know what I'm hoping that you, maybe that this time next year if you and I are talking about this that uh, we can see that the uh, that the home we have an update on the uh, the building of these homes and that the problem is alleviated and and we've addressed it. Uh, but I can tell you over the next year, I will be uh, on government's back uh, uh, with regards to this. It's uh, And so will Jordan and so will Leela. And so will we. And hopefully at least the problem or the, the crisis has subsided somewhat because it's not going to be an easy fix, but we've got to work as quick and as diligently as possible. Thanks for this, Jim. Thank you very much, Patty. Take, Appreciate take it. Have a good day. You too. Jim Din is the NDP member for St. John's Centre and also the leader of the party. Let's take a break. When we come back, Sandy Wall is there to talk about the important work being done at the Sash Bear Foundation. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to Sandy Wall with the Sash Bear Foundation. Good morning, Sandy. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Welcome um, to the show. So, welcome. Thank you. So my name is Sandy, like you said, and I'm a volunteer with the Sash Bear Foundation. Um, I have a short prepared statement that I would like to read out because I don't want to mess up things. Is that okay with you? Go right ahead. Okay, so Stash Bear is a registered charity for family and friends of loved ones who are struggling with mental health. The Sashbear's philosophy is that mental illness never affects just one individual, but affects fam the whole family. Helping and supporting the family and friends is vitally important. This often leads to the individual's mental health improving. By the way, one in four Canadians are affected by mental health challenges. So Sashbear is a leader in providing timely help that it's national, it's in both languages, it's by self-referral, and very importantly, it's free. Sashbear was just recognized in the House of Commons on May 3rd. This included a discussion with Prime Minister Trudeau, um, the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, uh, Minister Bennett, and our co-founders, Mike Menu and Lynn Curry. Uh, Lynn is also our president. Sashbear is striving towards the three A's, which are awareness, acceptance, and, ex and access. 
So this is where I come into it. So two years back, I was a mom, and I was literally falling apart. My husband and I had four teens. Two of our teens have borderline personality disorder. Um, we had multiple suicide attempts, many police visits, visits, and myself personally, I was truly hopeless. I was beyond um, despair. So my hubby and I saw this program online, and we signed up for the Family Connection 12-week program. That's run by trained volunteers who have struggled with the exact same things that we were going through. Until then, I had tried tons of stuff, but I was frustrated because the help provincially, like through Janeway, which, by the way, is excellent, the wait lists were really long. And for us to go through private health care, especially since uh, we knew that it was going to be a lot of sessions, the price was basically up beyond our means. I also didn't accept my situation. I used to think, oh, those kids can't be fixed, and what could I possibly do to help them? But then I did the Family Connections program, and honestly, my mind was blown. I'm not going to say there aren't still bad days, because there are, but Sash Bear has taught my husband and myself the skills to navigate these situations. And thank God <laughs> the bad days are fewer apart, uh, and I'm doing so much better personally. Okay, so I'm almost done with my blurb, if that's okay. okay. <laughs> I, Sash, I just want to, people to know that I passionately care about Sash Bear because of the difference it's made in my family. So last year, I organized, with along with some other great volunteers, a walk for Sash Bear. It's a fundraising walk, and it's to promote um, awareness around mental health. And we're doing it again this year. So we're doing it uh, on June 17th. This walk's been happening nationally for 11 years, but here in Newfoundland, we're newbies, so it's only our second year, and we're looking for volunteers and participants. Now, Patty, I can give you the blurb about the walk, or we can have a chat yeah, let's first. Have, let's have a chat, and we'll wrap it up okay. with uh, some more details about the walk. One of the okay, major perfect. takeaways from your opening statement was we make the reference, and it wasn't that long ago we were saying one in five Canadians affected by mental health challenges, and now we're talking about one in four. But when you build right. on it by saying one in four is a bit of a misleading number because if you have a family member a friend or some other relative who is suffering with a mental illness that impacts you and everyone around you. So of course, one in four might be on the individual level, but it's the family members and friends that are also impacted, not to the same extent, but impacted nonetheless. You say, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I would even argue maybe not to the same extent, but what I've seen and what's happened with me personally is you get burnt out. You are trying to help your family, especially if it's your children, but any family, and you're doing everything you can and you feel like you're going nowhere. So your mental health starts to get affected. Like before I joined Sashbear, I honestly was in a really bad way mentally. And that's the takeaway I would like people to realize that, sure, one in four Canadians struggle with mental health, but it's a global uh, academic, in my opinion, because it affects so many other people than that actual person that's in the doctor's office being diagnosed. Absolutely. So what 
give us a couple of uh, ideas about what you found from Sash Bear Foundation for you and your husband to be better prepared to navigate the tough days, such as? Okay, so they teach you skills in this 12-week program, and one of the skills I found really useful was validation. So one of my kids uh, (laughs) would have a meltdown over something as simple as we didn't buy the right cheese. And uh, how can I make the sandwich? I don't have the right cheese. And it would be, you know, a complete and total meltdown, to be quite honest. And typically I'd be like, oh, for God's sakes, it's cheese. Get over yourself. Go in your room. Calm down. Where now I'm like, you know what? That must be really upsetting for you. Um, uh, You know, I'm sorry we didn't get to it. What kind of solution can we figure out so you're not upset, you get something to eat, and we can move on? So it's, you know, uh, that might sound really simple, but it just has, has taught my husband and I ways to support our kids by validation, by listening, by not judging. A really great one for me is benign interpretation. Because instead of thinking, hey, those kids are doing this to manipulate me or to be um, arseholes, probably can't say that online, sorry. But, uh, you know, no, they're really, really struggling. And I need to understand that they're struggling and show sympathy, support, that kind of thing. Does that make sense? It does, because, of course, you mentioned burnout. It can be extremely draining on top of worrying and whatever word people would like to add to it. Uh, before I get up to the newscast, I do want to give you an opportunity, Sandy, to talk about the where than whens and maybe a quick blurb about the walk. Okay. So the Sash Bear Walk on the Rock 2023 United for Change, that's our theme. It's Saturday, June 17th. It's at Kitty Bitty Lake. Registrations at 10. We have live entertainment featuring the Cladoscope Lounge starting at 10.30. The actual walk program with our guest speakers and stuff is at 11. It's a five-kilometer loop, but this is accessible, and you can do as little or as much as you want. During that loop, you're going to find uh, a place to decorate rocks, uh, meditation. We're giving out swag. This is a kid and dog-friendly event. But all families, and when I say family, I mean in any way you define the word family, are welcome. And if you want to register for the walk, you can go to sashbear.org and they'll have more information. And one final plug, this Thursday, May 18th, 6 to 10 p.m., I'm uh, hosting a craft night at the United Church on, in Portugal Cove. So it's um, 1859 Portugal Cove Road, and it's from 6 to 10. Everybody's welcome. You don't have to stay for the full four hours. You can come do some crafts. Uh, all skill levels are welcome. And so we just want to invite everybody to the walk and have a great turnout and decrease the stigma around mental health. I appreciate the time this morning, Sandy. So you can go to sashbear.org or talksuicide.ca. If you find yourself in crisis, this is another option for you. It's a toll-free number. It's one 866 Six. I appreciate this. Good luck with the event, Sandy. Thank you for your time. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the news, let's go to line number three. Madeline, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. First-time caller. Welcome. Um, my husband has a Samsung flip phone, and since we got the alert yesterday morning at 10.55, 
his phone has been going off every two minutes, and we don't know how to stop it. But I was the, wondering if you had any other calls. No, we haven't. So this, you mean the emergency alert we got yesterday hasn't stopped on your phone? No. <laughs> That's annoying. You're probably going to hear it now very shortly. I wouldn't know where to send you. I think there's a website called alertready.ca. I okay. think that's where people were trying to find out whether or not their device was compatible. I think that's the the website address for it. They might have some information there as to how you can turn it off. And there's probably something okay. very simple in the settings to uh, disengage this repeated emergency alert. But try, I think that's the website. So I'd Google up Canada Emergency Alert, alertready.ca, and then probably the, one of the top two uh, listings will give you some help. Okay, thank you very much. My pleasure. Good luck. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Imagine that going off every couple of minutes. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking nursing week, fossil fuels, hydro, whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Join Brian Medore weekdays at noon for a comprehensive update on news from every corner on all levels. Newsmakers, weather, and more. Join us on your VOCM at noon. Welcome back to the show. Uh, just before we get to the call or so, apparently, and I, duh, I should have thought of this, for the lady whose fa- husband's flip phone won't stop going off the alert, apparently others have simply turned the phone off for an hour or so, turned it back on, the alert stopped. Oh, it's in the options? Okay, great. There we go. Let's go to line number two. Let's take it more to the presence of Nate. That's Jerry Earl. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. I just want to give a quick call uh, to make a shout out to the nurses that we represent across Newfoundland Labrador, uh, those that provide uh, nursing care, personal care attendants, and indeed all nurses. This is Nursing Week, not only in Newfoundland Labrador, but across the country. So, an opportunity just to acknowledge these valued healthcare workers uh, for the contributions every day in our province and especially this week. Absolutely. And, you know, we had Dr. April Pike, who's the interim dean of the School of Nursing at Mon on the program yes. earlier this morning and you know someone told me that we were glossing over the issues my goodness we talk about these concerns every single day on this program but i also think it's important what dr pike is trying to do here is not only attend to the concerns that nurses have today but also try to make a message craft a message where you don't dissuade people from joining the Absolutely. ranks of nurses so you know we can do both at the same time and it doesn't mean we're glossing things over or, or shoving things into the shadows because we can address what's happening but we also have to make sure that every seat for a nurse practitioner or a registered nurse at MUN is satisfied with someone who wants to join the profession. Absolutely, Teddy. And like you hear the difficulties talk about in healthcare, but again, if you talk to the vast majority of these nurses, personal care attendants, registered nurses that work in the healthcare system, uh, they're very passionate about the work they do. The work is very valuable work. Is the working environment right now challenging? Absolutely. Uh, but if we can appropriate resources, uh, reach out to young people and talk about rewarding careers, because if it was fully resourced, we wouldn't be talking about the issues of extensive shifts and be able to get time off, uh, we would be able to address those. So I think we got to talk about like the value that these professions bring to our healthcare system. Uh, the work itself, uh, I don't want to say years ago, it's been a while, I've done it myself. The work is extremely valuable. It's rewarding, uh, interacting with Newfoundlanders and Labradorians, uh, making a difference in their time and need. It, it's very uh, rewarding work. So like I said, we have difficulties. So what we have to work is, uh, I agree, with solutions. How do we get more people uh, into the seats, whether it be practical nursing, uh, other healthcare programs, uh, deal with the challenges that we have, properly resource healthcare, uh, and hopefully we can get back to where it used to be, where we won't have individuals and not being able to access time and not knowing when to get an awful work. Uh, the environment right now can't deny it is challenging, 
But again, I'll say to anyone out there that's thinking about the career, it is extremely rewarding work. Uh, and I just want to commend the people that are there that are holding together right now until we can find the solutions in the uh, weeks, months, uh, year or two ahead. And so happy Nursing Week to all those working in the profession, those considering it, and those who are sitting in a seat at Munns Nursing School or anywhere where they're training to be a nurse. Uh, very quickly before I have to go, Jerry, I also yep. want to touch base quickly on the issue regarding media coverage of correctional officers. So Absolutely. people might think that that's another case of glossing mm-hmm. over some concerns that would be voiced by inmates former or current or what have you. But what was some of that social research? What did it show regarding how the media talks about and covers correctional officers? Because one quote in that story I read, I think is fair. What most of us know about correctional officers is what we see on TV and the movies. And like everything else in this world, it doesn't necessarily uh, give you a clear picture of reality. Absolutely. And again, correctional officers, and this week is correctional officers week, so we acknowledge those women and men that work in a very challenging environment. Uh, Petty, and unfortunately, it's like most things, you don't hear of all the good things that happen uh, inside correctional facilities. Uh, what these correctional officers, the women and men do every day, you hear of when there's a negative occurrence or whatever. But every day they go in there, uh, they work in a very challenging environment, they help uh, try to rehabilitate in the limited resources that they have today. That's what we keep advocating for. Uh, and unfortunately, they don't get the attention when they do an, a number of good things. You don't hear all the good things they do. And I can tell you on a daily basis, I know a lot of these officers, uh, and I talk to them routinely. Uh, and that's the problem. Like, it's unfortunate when it's something negative. Uh, it adversely affects them from even a mental health point of view when they're kind of shone a negative light. And there's going to be occurrences, but all the good things they do every day, uh, and they, there's things that they will agree. Do they need additional training in mental health? Absolutely. But again, a, a group that's under-resourced, not able to avail of that, and also not provided. So they're continuously advocating for them. But like a report we've even done, it's acknowledging, listening frontline officers, what they need. And the media attention is almost like what they're talking about is that somebody would be able to talk about it just the same as the RNC would do. Uh, that's not done for the officers within the organization. They rely on the union to come out. And most often it's trying to defend them uh, when there's negative comments made about these women and men. Uh, like I said, every day, uh, you can't imagine how challenging the work is. Yeah, and again, talking about resourcing and issues, whether it be some of the stories that are deserved with a negative light, yep. but, you know, again, what we're, where, we, where we find ourselves is people are all in or all out on almost everything, you know? There's such staunch opinions yeah. built sometimes on pretty flimsy info or just some hive mind thinking, but fair ball. Jerry, I appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. And appreciate your time, Dave, if you're listening to the audience. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. That's Jerry Earl. He's the president of NAPE, of course. Uh, oh, Mary just dropped out. I was going to give her a chance to talk about her lost dog. Let's take our final break here now, because when we come back, we've been talking a lot about, because it's an important matter, the standoff regarding snow crab. We've heard from the FFAW, and now, thankfully, this morning, we're going to hear from the Association of Seafood Producers and their executive director, Jeff Loader, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the executive director of the Association of Seafood Producers. That's Jeff Loader. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thank you. How about you? Um... Not too bad. Uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the call. Um, And if you're okay with it, I'd like just to jump right into it. Let's go. So uh, I wanted to uh, take, uh, uh, I called in to ensure that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador uh, in the fishing industry, 
the auxiliary businesses who rely on the fishery and as well as the general public uh, understand what has transpired over the last three or four weeks and in particular the last 48 hours. There is an incredible amount of misinformation and misrepresentation regarding ASP uh, over the last particularly 48 hours that I would like to publicly address so people know the truth, the facts, and have all the available information to make appropriate decisions. What sort of misinformation are you referring to? Right now, there, is, uh, uh, there have been uh, releases sent out by the FFAW, this occurred yesterday, suggesting that the Association of Seafood Producers uh, countered or tabled an offer to the FFAW, and it's being described right now through the F- by the FFAW as an AF- ASP position that is being discussed internally by the FFAW. That is not correct, and it's not true. It's not what happened, and I would like to walk through what has happened here over the last three or four weeks. When we went into the price-setting panel, uh, it was very clear that the market was heading in a downward trajectory. We outlined that very carefully in our submission. It was accurate, and the right decision was made by the panel. A few weeks later, a week and a half, two weeks later, on the request of the province, uh, uh, and we always kept, uh, uh, you know, an informal open conversation with the FFAW in the, in the spirit of good faith and uh, uh, because of the importance of the crab fishery and the fishery more generally. As an association, uh, we signaled through those conversations with government and the FFAW that we would agree to not uh, request for reconsideration of the minimum price for three weeks originally. That was rejected by the FFAW. Following that, uh, in conversations with multiple ministers and government and the president of the FFAW, um, ASP, agreed that we would not seek a reconsideration for the rest of this year at 220, despite the fact that there's very little to no margin for producers at that number. It's a dollar, the market has dropped a dollar since the time of that decision. Uh, but producers recognizing the importance of maintaining plant workers, their employees, maintaining their relationships with supply businesses, and to be able to compete and actually try to create some value made those decisions. This week, uh, ASP was asked by the FFAW to sit down with the Crab Collective Bargaining Committee. This occurred yesterday morning. Uh, We did have an exchange, uh, some verbal conversations, and we had some verbal offers initially yesterday morning. ASP requested that the FFAW, after two times where we had a handshake deal, provide an offer to us in writing. We received that offer uh, around midday yesterday uh, while we were all in a hotel. Uh, The offer was no different, really, than what was presented to this panel by the FFAW and ASP, uh, given uh, the commitment we made yesterday to show up and try to work through this issue, uh, ended discussions. Following that, yesterday afternoon, the president of the FFAW and the secretary-treasurer came down to ASP and outlined what they felt could potentially be a workable solution. 
I took that solution uh, uh, to my members. I made it clear to the FFAW that ASP was not making any more offers. We've made two offers related to the minimum price and not seeking a reconsideration. And we had an understanding that the FFAW would go back, think through what had been discussed, and if appropriate, would send that to ASP as a formal offer. I subsequently received an email from Jason Spingle asking for confirmation uh, on what was discussed uh, and whether it was an ASP offer. I responded back in writing to Mr. Spingle saying that there was no ASP offer. I'm very confused. You were just here and you outlined what your offer would look like. Following that conversation, the FFAW put out a press release saying ASP countered. ASP did not counter. There are no formal offers on the table from the Association of Seafood Producers. The characterization by the FFAW that we did that is an outright fabrication of the truth. And at today, uh, I'm calling in because we are at a very critical moment. Last night, boats, uh, harvesters uh, asked producers for ice and bait, and they attempted to go fishing. They were blocked by other harvesters, and this morning, ice trucks and bait trucks are being blocked by other harvesters. That is something that is offside the Fish Collective Bargaining Act. No individual harvester has a right to prevent another harvester from going to work. We are now in a position here today where there are too many games, too much misrepresentation when we have the rural economy at stake. From our position uh, as an association, we have 25 members. We have been negotiating in good faith uh, to the extent that we could, recognizing where the market is for a month. We have been met with uh, and dealt with an organization that has made several deals, and they weren't deals. And yesterday, there was a complete fabrication of what transpired. And it's important that everyone in this province understand that. It's time to start the fishery. People's livelihoods are at stake. And we are now in a situation where public safety is a serious issue. I will be releasing a statement shortly that outlines exactly what has happened. And we will be sending a letter to the Minister of Justice and Public Safety, to the Minister of Fisheries, and the Minister of Labor, requesting immediate action to protect the rights of workers in this province to go to work. This is a very, very unnecessary situation, and it has been fueled uh, by factors that should never have been at play. And this is right now a, a critical moment, Patty, which is why I have called in to open line. Um, I have not done that, uh, representing our 25 members, because we didn't want to put any fuel on the fire. We wanted to try to keep this to a reasonable conversation. But when our organization and the contribution that member producers make to this province is being mischaracterized, and individual harvesters are being misled, I have an obligation to speak. So uh, and I want to make it clear to everyone, okay. there is no ASP offer on the table. If the FFAW 
as per the conversation yesterday, can get a mandate to come back to ASP with a proposal. We will look at it and we will evaluate it, and we will make a decision accordingly. Okay. This is all a little bit confusing, I have to say. So the offer, like even when I read the news story, it wasn't abundantly clear exactly what was going on. So the final offer they've made is reference to the uh, Erner-Barry Index being applied, which, of course, evaluates market conditions. So their harvesters are going to vote on it, and are you saying that if they come back and say, yes, we'd like for you to consider, that would be a sliding scale based on market pressures up to six bucks, and then the opportunity to go back to the price setting panel so is that what we're talking about so so patty asp does not have any offer from the ffaw what has occurred is a misrepresentation of the discussions and the characterization that what was discussed is somehow an asp offer which it was not as i said if the ffaw would like to propose Something along the lines, as was discussed yesterday, we will receive it and we will evaluate it. Uh, we have made two offers related to the minimum price and not seeking uh, a, a reexamination of that with the panel and reconsideration. Uh, but there's no offer from ASP, and there will not be another offer in any way from ASP. We will receive offers that have been vetted and signed off on whoever has to sign off on that in the FFAW. Because right now, we're not sure who that is. And I believe government is not sure who it is. Uh, and we will not be negotiating with a party that doesn't have the ability to negotiate. So the last word from ASP was April 28th, a letter saying for 21 days we'll stick with 220. Now committed to 220 for the entirety of the season. That's it. That's the final offer from ASP at this point. Uh, they were offers made at that time. Have they been withdrawn? There are no offers on the table from ASP right now. If the FFAW would like to come back to ASP and include that in another offer, and it must include uh, trip limits, we are ready to have that conversation. I met with the Crab Bargaining Committee on Thursday to myself to discuss trip limits after they met with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans federally. There was a good conversation going on. This morning and late last night, there was communication that trip limits are not on the table anymore by ASP. All of that is 100% incorrect. We will sit down and evaluate a proposal that can include a 220 guarantee on a reconsideration. A path forward on trip limits, if it doesn't include anything on trip limits, we will enforce trip limits as a producer group, and there will be an approach where it is fair across all fleet sectors. Uh, the season is running out, time is getting short, and we will have to impose a fair trip limit scheme. We are happy to work that out with the FFAW. It needs to be addressed. The last thing that can happen this year when the season starts is 40 million pounds of crab to be dumped on wharfs in two or three weeks, uh, uh, which will raise quality and other issues. We've been very clear about that from the beginning. Uh, we will continue to negotiate in good faith. Uh, but it's important that everyone understand in the province right now, if there's going to be a resolution between ASP and FFAW through uh, negotiations and through collective bargaining, we need an offer sent to us 
that is, uh, uh, will be binding. We will not be reviewing any offers that do not have complete sign-off by the FFAW. We've done it twice, and they could not be ratified, even though it was guaranteed that it could be. Okay, so, just very quickly, because I wish we had more time, because there's a lot to this. So the harvesters that were hitting the water last night, what would they be selling their crab for? They would, as is the law in this province, the minimum price that would be paid is 220 per pound as a raw material price at the wharf. One of the, mis I think, biggest misunderstood uh, uh, issue that has been occurring is that's the minimum price. There have been incremental and differential payments often discussed as bonuses in this province for harvesters for quite some time. And that is still the reality. This was clearly outlined in the submission and the decision of the panel. The 220 is the legally obligated price for the raw material that lands at the wharf that we have to pay. Okay. Unfortunately for today, Jeff, uh, we're out of time, and I wish we did have more. We'll uh, very likely hear from the union again in the morning, and at that point we can reach out to you, not in an effort to have a media tit-for-tat or to-and-fro, but there's still so much more I'd like to talk to you about uh, regarding the processing sector and its future. Uh, I appreciate the time and the commentary today, though, Jeff. Thank you. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Jeff, Jeff Loader, Executive Director at ASP, the Association of Seafood Producers. And I wish we had more time. And we will get Jeff back. All right. Good show today. Whew. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.